optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now would have seen the perfect time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by 99designs. 99designs is the global creative platform that makes it easy for designers and clients to work together. From logos to apps and packaging to books, 99designs is the go-to design resource for any budget. I've used 99designs for many, many years now. I've used them for book covers, for instance, mock-ups for The 4-Hour Body, which went on to become a number one New York Times bestseller, illustrations for my multi-volume, The Tao of Seneca, and other graphic design projects. And I've been really impressed by the quality of their designers and the designs that I've ended up using. Most recently, I used 99designs to update the illustrations and layouts of my five morning rituals ebook. This covers my most consistent morning routines and rituals. And I offer that as an incentive for people to sign up for my newsletter. So this is a PDF bonus that acts as a carrot to increase the number of email subscribers. The illustrations inside are gorgeous, and I loved working with the designer who we selected for the project. So you can check it out. Take a look at that at 99designs.com forward slash Tim. That's the number 99designs.com forward slash Tim. And you can see exactly what I'm talking about with a real world example of what has come out of working with them. 99designs designer search tool connects you directly with one designer based on design category or industry specialization, style, skill level, availability, and more. So you can really check all the boxes that you need and see who matches up. Or you can start a contest. And that means you invite the entire community to take a shot at your project, then you pick your favorite. Right now, you guys, my listeners, that is, can receive a free $99 upgrade on your first design contest. So check it out. To see what it looks like to get your first free upgrade, please visit 99designs.com forward slash Tim and click on the link in the landing page. So again, check it out, 99designs.com forward slash Tim. I get asked all the time, if you could only use one supplement, what would it be? And my answer is inevitably Athletic Greens. It is your all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it in the 4-Hour Body, did not get paid for that, and I travel with it to avoid getting sick. I take it in the mornings to ensure optimal performance. It just covers all my bases if I can't get what I need through whole food meals throughout the rest of the day. If you want to give Athletic Greens a try, they are offering a free 20-count travel pack for first-time users. I always travel with at least three or four of these. This represents a $100 value. So if you buy Athletic Greens, you get an extra $100 in free product. So check it out, athleticgreens.com forward slash Tim. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Tim for your free travel pack with any purchase. Why, hello, my beautiful little munchkins. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job each episode to tease out the habits, routines, favorite books, life lessons, and so on, of world-class performers across every possible discipline. And my guest today is Patrick Collison, C-O-L-L-I-S-O-N, 
at Patrick C on Twitter, patrickcollison.com, stripe.com. Patrick is CEO and co-founder of Stripe, a technology company that builds economic infrastructure for the internet. We'll explain what that means in this episode. After experiencing firsthand how difficult it was to set up an online business, Patrick and his brother John started Stripe in 2010. Their goal was to make accepting payments on the internet simpler and more inclusive. And the story's fascinating because, in part, there were many incumbents. People thought Stripe had no chance. It was not intrinsically interesting to a lot of the people who might have assessed it. And yet, today, Stripe powers millions of online businesses around the world and is worth roughly $20 billion, making the brothers two of the youngest multi-billionaires on the planet. Prior to Stripe, Patrick co-founded Octomatic, which was acquired by Live Current Media for $5 million in March 2008. In 2016, he was named a presidential ambassador for global entrepreneurship by President Obama. Originally from Limerick, Ireland, Patrick now lives in San Francisco, where Stripe is headquartered. And I thought I'd mention just a few of his favorite books, because... He is one of the best-read humans I've ever encountered, and that's saying a lot. He has read, I would have to imagine, thousands of books, and I did some filtering and searching and found a number of them that he considers particularly great in his words, and I'm going to just list a few, and then I will put these in the show notes at tim.blog forward slash podcast. The first is The Rise and Fall of American Growth. And that's my dog whining in the background. The second is a novel, Mind-Body Problem. That's a hyphen, Mind-Body Problem. Poor Charlie's Almanac, which has come up a lot on this podcast by Charlie Munger. And Something Incredibly Wonderful Happens, subtitle Frank Oppenheimer and the World He Made Up. There are many, many more. I'm going to put those in the show notes for you guys and filter them for only the particularly great. And you can find those at tim.blog forward slash podcast and just search Patrick, and it'll pop right up. So without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Patrick Collison. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to connect to finally have this long-form conversation, and I thought a good place to start might be by quoting from a text exchange, or rather one of the first texts that I got (laughs) from our mutual friend, Chris Saka, who's also been on the podcast, for those who don't know him, extremely adept investor and all-around hilarious guy. Uh, He's uh, he's a real character. (laughs) He's a real character. He's managed to uh, make one or two or however many billions of dollars, which is amazing because I got to see him from the early days when uh, you probably first met him, I guess, maybe a year or two later. In any case, Chris is a character, and he very rarely makes introductions. He very rarely proposes introductions. So I pay attention when he does. And he sent me as context. Of, of course, I was familiar with Stripe. I had heard your name before. We had, I think, even exchanged potentially a couple of DMs on Twitter. Right. But he said, and I'm going to edit here for length a little bit, but Patrick is quite literally one of the smartest people I've ever known. Like he puts Larry Page on his heels smart. I don't know anyone who has, one, read more books, and two, has a near photographic memory for what he has read. His thoughts are provocative and challenge the status quo. His success is no accident. 
and then then you can fact check this when we when we get into more of a conversation here. But plus, his origin story is great. As I recall, Colin grew up in rural Ireland, took his first communion money and bought a computer, created his own operating system while coding over a dial-up line. Paul Graham, for those people who don't know the name, basically the Yoda of something called Y Combinator. We'll come back to that. Paul Graham noticed him and invited him to the U.S. I met him when he was 15 and PG, that's Paul Graham, brought him by the Google offices. Pretty sure he dropped out of Harvard or MIT, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> He's also a pilot who, when Obama made the trip to Cuba and invited along a few top entrepreneurs like the Airbnb founders, Patrick said he would meet them there and rented a small plane to fly himself from Florida. Okay, pause. <laughs> now, Chris and I were also exchanging text messages earlier today because I wanted to ask his permission to to read that. And there are two more things I'll add as background color, and then we can we can get amongst it. So the first, he says, quick story. Octomatic, and we can get into that, but this is this is one of your previous companies, was a front end on eBay that allowed sellers to upload a bunch of products at once and scale their operations. One night, someone from the Netherlands wrote them an email that Octomatic didn't support Dutch. Literally in the middle of the night, they wrote back something like 15 or 30 minutes later saying, quote, it does now, end quote. And then this is a very Saka-esque expression, fucking legends, period. And then he said also, when we sold their first company, I held a little closing celebration at that bar below my house, his then place, District. This is in San Francisco. Well, they were both underage, but Patrick's brother John got negged from the bar, literally could not get into his own celebration for selling a company and becoming a millionaire. I will never forget that moment. It crystallized, quote, what's happening out here is different. There's no hierarchy predicated on seniority. Smart young people who bust their asses don't have to, quote, work their way up, end quote. So... That is uh, all by means of, of introduction. Yeah, I think we should probably just end the podcast right now. <laughs> I, I don't think there's any possible way that any human uh, alive today or who's ever uh, existed in human history could possibly uh, live up to that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say no pressure, nothing to live up to now. Uh, but I think we can, we can start with very comfortable ground, and that is books. Uh, let's talk about books. You have many books. I want to say... 600 or more in the recommended reading section on your website. Maybe I'm getting it wrong. Maybe it's been changed. And you've, you've categorized them. You have some in above average. You have others as labeled particularly great. And those mm-hmm. range, this is from a, quoting from a Wired article in the UK, but they range from imperialism to engineering, democracy, on and on and on. Uh, what makes a book particularly great and... Which of those do you end up recommending the most or gifting the most to other people? Hmm. Um, I think, um, well, I, I find personally, actually, that it, it really matters a lot sort of uh, when I read a book and sort of the frame of mind that I'm in at the time, uh, sort of when I stumble across it. Um, and often I'll kind of start a book, uh, you know, at some point and maybe revisit it sort of months or in some cases even years later and find that it has kind of a, a completely sort of you know, renewed resonance or, or significance or something. And so I think there's kind of, a, you know, uh, um, Chris and uh, Mark Andreessen and others talk about this idea, and uh, of course, many people at this point talk about um, uh, sort of product market fit and founder market fit. I think with books, there's really something around uh, sort of <laughs> reader book fit uh, and the, the kind of particulars of that moment. Um, and so, you know, just by, by way of uh, example, um, 
I've been thinking a whole lot of late about sort of the importance of kind of cultural capital and how it is that people choose what to do and to aspire to and focus on and try to make happen in the world and the degree to which they're willing to take risks and the importance of visions and the importance of um, mentors and uh, people to look up to and all that. Anyway, um, and kind of specifically the idea that, you know, perhaps in the uh, uh, kind of um, the first half of the 20th century or maybe the first two thirds of the 20th century, there were kind of lots of examples of that. And perhaps, I mean, I'm not sure whether this is the case or not, but maybe perhaps there are fewer of those today. Anyway, thinking about this of late, um, uh, and of course, you know, I'm not the first to kind of point this out or, or raise this as an issue, but I stumbled upon just a couple of days ago, um, um, uh, a book published by, I'm probably going to get the name wrong, but the... Um, uh, there's a, a center at uh, ASU. It's it's like the the Center for um, Science and Possibility or something like that. I'm I'm pretty sure I'm getting that name wrong, but it, but it's uh, along those lines. Um, and they actually published a book of uh, science fiction uh, written by uh, well, I guess a, a whole host of authors um, with a foreword uh, from uh, from Neil Stevenson about exactly this idea, uh, the importance of uh, optimistic visions and kind of science fiction as sort of um, uh, flagging points on the horizon that might be interesting directions to sort of try to paddle towards. Uh, so anyway, uh, I think that for books, um, th I mean, th th this kind of um, uh, matching of, of kind of your mindset and kind of what's important to you at the particular moment um, with the kind of content itself sort of really matters. I think a corollary of that is that it's actually valuable to sort of um, to, or I, I at least find it useful to sort of to buy a lot of books that sort of seem interesting and high quality, but before I'm necessarily ready to read them at that moment, um, and maybe I'll kind of read the beginning or a couple of chapters or something, um, uh, but you know, not really kind of commit to finishing it and. Um, you know, I, 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 but, but I'll, kind of, I'll leave it out around the house. Uh, uh, like, you know, the, there's books on the bookshelves, there's books on the kitchen table, there's books, you know, beside the couch, there's books in my bedroom, there's usually books on my bed and so on. Um, and, you know, it, it's kind of in your mental landscape. And uh, I often find, I guess, that kind of six months later or, or 18 months later, something happens, something, uh, you're, you're reminded of something uh, and you realize, oh man, I really should get back to whatever book it is. I was just going to say, if if it's helpful, I was going to ask about the dream machine. Mm, yes, and maybe that illustrates how you vet books or right. hold on to books that are particularly valuable. Because at any given point in time, even if you have six to eight books around your house, there are hundreds of thousands of books published every yes. year. Right. So yep. there's a yep. there's a selection challenge. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, so first off, I think you should mostly ignore the books that are published every year um, right. and uh, uh, take advantage of the fact that, you know, quite a lot of books have been published, uh, say, you know, up to 10 years ago. Uh, but the books published up to 10 years ago, people have had a lot of time to kind of filter through them and sort of try to select uh, the, you know, the, the real gems there. And of course, there are a lot of false negatives. Like there were a lot of great books that just never, for whatever reason, got the attention they kind of deserved, or maybe that, that sort of, they don't have the salience that they ought to have for you. But but I, I really think people should be kind of much more biased towards uh, older books than they are. I think The Dream Machine is a good example of this. Um, and I think there are kind of two things, I guess, that uh, stand out in The Dream Machine. Um, uh, the first is uh, Mitchell Waldrop, the author, 
he really spent the time, well, I guess I should describe what it is. It, it is a book about the history, well, it is nominally a biography of uh, J.C.R. Licklider. Um, and, you know, many people were responsible for the creation of the internet, uh, but I think Licklider has more claim than any other single person uh, to being the individual kind of causally responsible for its creation. He funded uh, a lot of the early researchers. He sort of tried to bring the community together and he really kind of instigated uh, uh, much of the movement that um, that uh, led to ARPANET and the internet and so on. Um, and, uh, and, and it's this amazing book about obviously one of the most important inventions uh, in the history of humanity. Um, and Mitchell Waldrop spent the time to sort of real, I mean, years to, to, to really understand in depth, not just kind of the specific sequence of events that led to this happening, but the kind of milieu and sort of um, intellectual environment and thinking and landscape that it all came from. And so the book starts way before uh, Licklider was doing anything because there were kind of all these different kind of fields and disciplines and uh, sort of strains of thinking that Licklider built on. And I think it's you know pretty rare that an author um, either takes the time or has the time um, to to kind of really go deep in that manner. And it's striking that if you look at sort of how the Dream Machine came to be, um, uh, he was uh, he was funded by a grant. Uh, as I recall, it was the Sloan Foundation. I could be wrong on that, but uh, I believe it was the Sloan Foundation. Um, you know, th they thought this was, I mean, obviously kind of a, a super important period in history, but sort of, uh, you know, uh, Waldrop was not on sort of um, toiling under the clock to get a book out by Christmas. Uh, he, you know, he, he was really trying to sort of um, to, to, to capture an important um, uh, series of events in, in the arc of technology. Um, so that's really what stands out about that book. How did you come across that book? Because what, was it in print or out of print at the time that you came across it? Um, it was it was out of print. Uh, there were um, a couple of copies on Amazon, um, and I after I finished it, I was so excited about it that I um, went and bought a whole bunch of them to give away to people at Stripe, to give away to my friends, um, and you know fairly quickly we exhausted um, Amazon's. Uh, pretty limited supply. Uh, I think I I first heard about it from, I think, some combination of Brett Victor and Alan Kay. Uh, Alan Kay, you know, many of your listeners will already uh, know about. Uh, for anyone who doesn't, he was a researcher who worked at, who's kind of best known for working at Xerox Park, which is this amazing industrial research lab um, that uh, was kind of... Uh, um, played a sort of formative role in the creation of the GUI, the graphical computer interface, and Ethernet, the kind of uh, one of the main networking technologies, and object-oriented programming, which is kind of the main programming paradigm that's used today. And so they were just like really critical in kind of the history of, you know, what we consider modern technology, modern software. Um, anyway, Alan Kay worked there and was one of the kind of leading, you know, researchers there. And then Brett Victor is one of the most interesting kind of researchers, um, software um, I don't know, creatives uh, working today. And um, and I remember Alan saying that the dream machine is the kind of, uh, is semi-unique among kind of uh, computer history and technology history books uh, in uh, and it really kind of gets it right. And obviously, you know, we're a pretty young field. And so there hasn't been a whole lot of kind of research and, and you know, deep scholarly scrutiny, at least to the extent that there might be for, I don't know, math or physics or something. Um, 
but uh, but this book uh, really stood out. And you know, the technology industry is not an industry that sort of spends a lot of time looking to its past uh, in a way that I think is really both a strength and a weakness. Uh, in that, you know, people are always trying ideas that have failed kind of tons of times before, and they're kind of oblivious to the fact they've failed tons of times before. Uh, and that that really is kind of a good thing because sometimes you know the fact that it has failed five times before does not mean that it's going to fail a sixth time, but it you know can of course also in some ways be a weakness where we don't kind of build on ideas uh, that precede us. Uh, Alan Kay's line about this is uh, com- uh, computer science is a kind of pop culture where it, it's sort of <laughs> this kind of brownie in motion rather than kind of really building layer by layer. Uh, and so um, anyway, in, in that broader culture, I think the dream machine is kind of an outlier. And uh, you mentioned Alan. Uh, I, I should, or I should, I will just mention a quote that perhaps people have heard, which is, is often misattributed, but it is, I think, correctly attributed to Alan, which is the best way to predict the future is to invent it. Yes. That may be a quote that, uh, that people recognize, but perhaps not in association with the name. Uh, yeah. yeah, Alan, I would say, is, I mean, kind of um, quite widely you know, recognized as, uh, as a genius, uh, but kind of despite that, I think he is still kind of um, underrated. Uh, I think he uh, I think he will be even more highly regarded in 50 years or in 100 years than he is today. You are you're a young guy. What is your age currently? I, I'm 30. 30. Wow. Time for time. So, to, uh, time to order a walker on Amazon Prime. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you are a student of history. You mentioned something in relation to assessing books that has popped up in my homework, or I should say research rather for this conversation. And that is that perhaps one shouldn't overweight with a recency bias, the books published in the last year, right? You should give books a chance to fail or persist in a sense. And uh, feel free to correct me if I'm getting this wrong. But I've also read that you've, you've talked about how it is risky for people to emulate the sort of companies du jour, those yep. startups, companies around them that are contemporaries that are doing well. And that right. it's, it, it seems like you have made more of a study of the greats in the earlier days of the Valley or by extension companies like Microsoft, where the outcomes are more known. Uh, could you talk about that, uh, that a bit and yeah, maybe perhaps I, some of the things that you've gleaned or any lessons that have stuck with you? And I'd love to dig into perhaps some of the conclusions you came to, even if temporarily after studying these greats and one example, which, which may or may not be a good example, but what came up in doing some reading for this is that you observed that Google, Facebook, Amazon were created with conventional org charts in, 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 in some respects. So why, Mm -hmm. so you questioned the value, please correct me or elaborate on this, the value of innovating in that particular capacity, because there would, and that now I'm laying on my interpretation of that, which is Uh there there are potential unknown risks in doing so. And, uh, yep. Uh, right. Sort of questionable upside in uh, throwing more unknown variables into something like that versus other places where you could focus. So, could you yeah. could you could you ex- ex- maybe expand on that and then uh, right. share any other conclusions yeah. or lessons that you that you came to? Well, I think I think the kind of general idea here behind this is um, 
I think people often conflate the question of sort of what uh, it would be good to see others do versus uh, what you should do yourself. <laughs> um, and kind of what I specifically mean is people have tried a lot of different kind of organizational structures and methodologies over time, right? Um, and, and, and of course, you know, while in broad strokes, uh, many things have remained the same in terms of maybe some of the characteristics required for leadership or um, the importance or, you know, that which makes kind of a human satisfied in their work around sort of having kind of um, the opportunity to have autonomy and to kind of build mastery and um, uh, and you know, having a kind of mission they believe in and so on. So there are lots of things that remain the same. There, there has been kind of some evolution in that, you know, organizations, uh, you know, Google today say does not look especially like uh, uh, maybe IBM of 1950, you know, there's parallels, but, you know, very material differences. Um, however, uh, I think that, you know, um, most of the experiments uh, have failed. Um, uh, most efforts to do something that's kind of substantially different to the kind of best practice of the day, most of those efforts fail. Um, and so I think when you're designing a particular organization, um, doing something that like truly might kill it is just like a pretty risky thing to do. Uh, and evidently the way Google, Facebook, Microsoft and others are organized, um, Amazon, what have you, um, you know, I, I'm certain it's not perfect. I'm certain that not only can you do better, but you can do substantially better. Um, I really believe that. Uh, but at the same time, it's kind of empirically adequate to be Google, Facebook, um, you know, Apple or Amazon. Um, and I think doing better is, is, is just really pretty difficult. And so I actually love the fact that people are experimenting here. Um, the rise of remote organizations um, that you know, have no physical headquarters or um, you know, attempts to have, I mean, Buffer has been trying sort of you know, this kind of radical transparency down to kind of compensation. Uh, some organizations uh, like uh, Medium and uh, Zappos uh, tried uh, or are trying holacracy. And so I love the fact that all these experiments are happening. And, can, can you uh, define holacracy for a second? <laughs> well, I don't deeply understand it, but um, I, I think it is, um, I think, I, I believe, as I understand it, the core idea is having kind of uh, differing kind of decision-making bodies, like groups of people that are kind of responsible for major areas of the company rather than having a kind of more traditional hierarchy. And so perhaps, again, this this is my uh, superficial understanding, but so perhaps you might have, you know, some set of people who are responsible for making compensation decisions, some other set of people who are responsible for deciding, you know, what the product strategy should be for next year, and some other set of people who are responsible for, I don't know, figuring out how... Um, uh, you know, how the office should be decorated, but the kind of those sets of people don't need to kind of map on to, you know, some traditional hierarchy and making out of, they can be partly overlapping or, you know, bigger or smaller or whatever. Um, and, you know, that, that that's, uh, you know, when one describes that, I don't think that's, you know, a priori a, a ludicrous idea, you know, maybe that'll work. Um, but I think kind of the, uh, the, the, the sort of, the bias should be that for any radical departure from the the, uh, the kind of prevailing status quo, uh, it's it's probably not going to work. Uh, I think you know there's a probably a, a 90% chance, maybe maybe higher, that kind of any any uh, uh, meaningful deviation is a bad idea. 
And so, again, to kind of return to what I was sort of getting at at the beginning, um, I think we should celebrate the fact that all these experiments are happening uh, and should really cheer them on and should really hope that they succeed. Um, and kind of we ourselves should choose maybe some small number of experiments that we really believe in to, to, you know, to engage in. But I think for these kind of, you know, really high important or high importance, uh, really hard to change um, sort of trapdoor decisions like what kind of organizational structure, uh, you know, you're going to have. I think you actually want to bias towards being relatively conservative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't. Uh, you, you might be supportive of monkeys being shot into space, but you don't necessarily want to be one of the first Ten. <laughs> no, that, 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 that's exactly right. But I, I really think, like, one of the strangest things to me in the world, um, uh, you know, as I look out, is that people kind of don't celebrate this experimentation enough. Uh, uh, sort of, like, if it doesn't seem to them like the right thing to do, they get kind of offended by it, or it's, you know, it seems to uh, there's some kind of emotional response to it. Whereas I think, at least the response I try to kind of cultivate in myself is, I think that's a bad idea. It does not make sense given my model of the world. Uh, and I'm delighted it's happening. Like, that's so great. Uh, and if it fails, well, you know, that's unfortunate. And if it succeeds, you know, we we all get to learn something. That's kind of, that's what's so great about sort of the transmission of knowledge, that if it works in only one particular small instance, everyone gets to benefit from it. That's so cool. Um, and yet, um, when people try kind of, you know, strange things that don't kind of match our, our, our kind of, again, pre-existing comprehensions, um, you know, there's some combination of mockery or um, uh, or dismissiveness or, uh, um, again, the kind of emotional objection. Uh, whereas I really think we should be um, encouraging and celebrating them. And, and you know, the weirder the effort is, uh, the, the, the more they deserve our support. So look, I want to talk about what maybe some of the things you did differently, but not, not only what you did differently, because that's sort of a... Uh in some respects, uh, a causal factor, but in some respects, a, a, a downstream effect of thinking differently or seeing things differently. So what did you guys know that other people didn't? Because uh, I, I've heard multiple people uh, sort of comment on the early conception of Stripe or considering entering uh, a crowded market with ton of existing incumbents with regulatory and uh, institutional barriers to entry, all of these types of factors. Why did you decide to pursue that? What did you see that other people did not see in that case? Um, well, I think there's two different kinds of knowing, right? There's kind of conscious, explicit knowing where, you know, you see that there's kind of a prevailing belief or something and you understand why it's wrong and you have some kind of proprietary insight that everyone else doesn't have. I think there's another kind of sort of quote unquote knowing, which is uh, just you you have a belief or a model of the world and you don't even realize that it's different to others. Um, you... Uh, uh, it's it just, it, it's kind of some deeply internalized thing uh, that just for whatever circumstantial reasons you you uh, happen to have ended up with. And I think for us, it actually wasn't so much that we had a, in the beginning, this kind of comprehensive, deep understanding of the space and realized how everyone else was mistaken. We just had like a particular perspective, you know, because of how we, you know, where we came from and how we got started that, and, and, and we were lucky. Uh, we turned out that kind of that model we had and that outlook kind of matched the world at that time. But I, I really, I, th- I think it's very important that, you know, we, we don't kind of drink our own Kool-Aid here and, and 
um, overread into our sort of supposed insight. Uh, I really think you know it, it was um, uh, it was it was really just a lot of circumstance and good fortune. But I would say the kind of particular things that differed about Stripe um, uh, and kind of our our outlook were. We just didn't think that the kind of regulatory and kind of partnership slash banking barriers were actually that bad. Um, you know, they, they kind of sound intimidating and obviously you have to kind of do a lot of work there that maybe lots of other software companies don't have to do. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's fundamentally feasible. I mean, ultimately, regulators uh, and banks and, and so on are comprised of good people who want to do the right thing and may speak a different language or whatever, but are, are you know, they're, they're reasonable. Um, and I guess the other thing is we really f- had this mindset because of, I guess, where we, um, where we came from, that the kind of developers and makers and software were just going to continue to become increasingly important. And it's really amazing where kind of when we started out, um, we kind of our idea was that developers would just like we'd build a good product and developers would start using it and you know that 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 would be the story and we didn't even know that, that was such a kind of a, a a stupid distribution strategy and go to market mechanism we didn't even know how much enterprise marketing and uh enterprise sales motion and all the rest we were kind of skipping over uh, we just kind of had this very naive understanding of the world um however uh we're 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 lucky where the world really I think started to change around 2010 2011 where companies around the world and especially in kind of the U.S. and Europe really got the memo like big traditional companies that they would have to take advantage of what software was making possible and really transform themselves if they wanted to kind of survive and uh, and, and and prosper and so you know fast forward kind of five or six years later uh, even the kind of more traditional kind of stodgier companies that um, would have needed this kind of super complex uh, enterprise um, field team uh, to to kind of engage with, they were actually now starting to listen to their own developers. Uh, and when the CTO said, hey, I really think we should be using this kind of much more straightforward or, or uh, sort of much more powerful technology, unlike a decade before, they were actually being listened to. And so, again, this isn't sort of a thing we knew in the, in the way that we could have, um, you know, argued for it in, uh, in 2010, but it was a thing we kind of was somehow in our bones. And, and again, we were just lucky where we started right around when the world started to transform in this regard. And actually, we did this, um, we did this uh, survey uh, earlier uh, this year uh, where we kind of surveyed a whole bunch of, you know, I don't want to say kind of traditional, but, but sort of not software companies. We, we, we sort of surveyed companies, you know, fairly broadly across multiple industries. Uh, and we just asked them kind of what, what's holding them back. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's a, a very imperfect methodology, of course, because, you know, it's, it's hard to know what the kind of candidate answers there should be. And maybe, you know, these questions are, do they all interpret it the same way and, and so on. But the kind of very high level thing that sort of came back was that, um, Companies across the board report kind of availability of uh, software engineers and just like ability to kind of do things with software as being as big or even bigger a constraint on their progress as access to capital. And that's just such an amazing fact, right? Uh, in that sort of, you know, economics for um, uh, for for its history, basically, has been sort of a science of, in some sense, uh, you know, access to and and kind of distribution of capital. 
Uh, and we're just at this kind of moment of transformation where, I mean, on some level, you can exchange, you know, capital for software talent and, and output and so on. But it's actually really hard to do. And I think companies globally are really struggling with figuring out how to make that happen. And so anyway, we just had the good fortune of getting started right when that came to be the case. So uh, there, there are definitely, uh, I shouldn't say synchronicities, but sort of fortuitous timing aspects to it. And, uh, and I think that, of course, lady, lady fortune, good luck or bad luck is always a factor, but it's, it's in a case like this necessary and not sufficient, right? There are certain things within your control, assuming we don't get into a really long, uh, confusing uh, discussion about free will. Let's just assume there are certain things that depend on you making very specific decisions. There are these these forks in the road. And uh, I'd love to talk about some of the things that you feel like you did right, or small things that turned into big things. And I'll, I'll read, I want to read just a very brief paragraph from the Yoda mentioned earlier, Paul Graham. And uh, for people who are interested in learning more about Y Combinator, we can talk about it, but it's, mm-hmm. uh, that, and this is going to be vastly simplified, but for people who have never heard this before, Y Combinator, often abbreviated to YC, is the SEAL Team 6 Harvard <laughs> of, and uh, let's just call it startup incubators of sorts. Mm-hmm. They, they accept a class. It is a very small percentage. I want to say single digits at this point. It would have to be in terms of the number of applicants. And uh, there are many, many well-known uh, companies that have come out of, of Y Combinator. Uh, and Paul has a, many fantastic essays online, yes. which people should read. YC is one of the most amazing inventions um, of the past 20 years. Uh, and I think PG's essays are still a goldmine that, um, sort of like Alan Kay, I think are still like people kind of know they're great, but, uh, I think they're sort of even better than people appreciate. Oh, for sure. And a lot, and, and many of them, uh, I've also read his book. Uh, many of them are, they are not timely in the best possible sense. They yes. are, they're, they're based on first principles, um, uh, and an example of that, I'm, I always mess up the headline, but I think it's the maker's schedule versus the manager's schedule, something along those lines. People can find it. I'll put it in the show notes. But th- this particular essay talks a bit about Stripe. And it says, Stripe, quote, Stripe is one of the most successful startups we funded, and the problem they solved was an urgent one. If anyone would have sat back and waited for users, or could have sat back and waited for users, it was Stripe. But in fact, they're famous within YC for aggressive early user acquisition. Startups building things for other startups have a big pool of potential users in in, in the other companies we funded, and none took better advantage of it than Stripe. At YC, we use the term, quote, Collison installation, end quote, for the technique they invented. More diffident founders ask, will you try our beta? And for people who don't know, that terminology just means effectively a rough draft of a, a, a product. Will you try our beta? And if the answer is yes, they say, great, we'll send you a link. But the Collison brothers weren't going to wait. When anyone agreed to try Stripe, they'd say, right then, give me your laptop and set them up on the spot. Right? So that seems like a small thing, but it it doesn't strike me that if that's the beginning of certain types of snowballs and user acquisition, that is a really important uh, or could be a really important differentiator. Uh, So what are, what are some of, feel free to take this in any direction, but some of the, the other things that that you guys got right. And I, I do remember even in Silicon Valley, which of course is, 
a can be an echo chamber of sorts, uh, but there was a lot of talk, even at the periphery of my circles, and I am non-technical, I'm not a developer, about how easy Stripe was to uh, implement, right? Seven lines of code or X number of lines of code and your setup. And I'm that... I'm sure on some level was yep. a very conscious decision, and not only in terms of product, but also in terms of positioning. So can you, can you talk about some of the early decisions that yeah. it, in retrospect were really important? So I think um, there, there, there are two that really jump out to me where, you know, I think um, they were actually kind of somewhat deliberate. Um, well, I'll, I'll give two and maybe I'll think of more. Um, so one is, you know, we had sort of grown up reading Slashdot, you know, this early kind of tech news website, but it was kind of crowdsourced um, and Hacker News uh, and Twitter um, and uh, blogs and, you know, all these kinds of services. Um, And I guess we just sort of had a belief that how people found out about things in the world had changed. And in particular, the kind of the market was getting more efficient. And by efficient, I mean that uh, it was becoming more likely that people would come to discover the kind of quote unquote correct thing uh, that maybe kind of 30 years ago or something, because there were sort of uh, much slower or fewer kind of distribution channels that who won and what got used would be kind of determined more by marketing budgets um, or by sales decks or whatever, but that there was a, a new kind of sort of transparency and um, kind of um, efficacy and in information dissemination that the internet now made possible that uh, uh, shifted the way that sort of a product could really get adopted. And so just very concretely, our sales and marketing strategy for a very long time uh, was um, – was writing blog posts that we just thought were, you know, good and interesting, uh, or at least we hoped were, um, and building a good product and hoping that people would tell others about it. And I really don't think that that would have worked 10 years previously. Uh, it was kind of the internet had changed, but we just kind of made a very deliberate bet on, um, uh, on these kind of superior distribution channels. And I think that actually really helped us in two big ways. Uh, one is, uh, it, it's kind of obviously cheaper. Um, and so you look at a lot of other companies, especially companies selling to businesses, and they spend vast, gargantuan amounts of money on their kind of sales and marketing strategies. Uh, and so sort of early on, we just, uh, we, we, we didn't have to do that. Uh, and so, you know, it was kind of transformatively impactful in that sense. Maybe if we'd had to kind of, you know, spend a lot on, on, on sort of getting started, it perhaps would have been, uh, you know, that that could have been a severe enough barrier that we wouldn't have uh, gotten over it at all. Maybe the company would never have happened. So that's the first. The second is... Can I pause for one second? Yeah, sure. Do you recall any of the blog posts that, if, if you were to do kind of an 80-20 analysis and look at those that really move the needle, do you recall any of the topics or just your basic um, ap- approach? Well, I remember... Um, a guy who worked at Stripe and who still works at Stripe, his name is Evan, he wrote a blog post about how to debug Python, um, which is a programming language, with GDB, which is a, a debugger. Uh, it didn't really have much to do with Stripe. It was actually it was a really good blog post. Um, and you know, this is probably back in 2012. And I just remember that that got a whole bunch of traffic. Um, and it, you know, as a consequence, people kind of found out about Stripe. Um, and maybe kind of realized that we 
knew something about what we were talking about from a technical standpoint and um and it, it moved the needle for us um, uh, back at a time where really nobody had heard of us. It's it's also, if if I may, I'm, I'm caffeinated enough now to, to feel the need to jump in and, and commentate, but the <laughs> it's also a really good example of an editorial honeypot that will attract the types of people who are technically probably in positions to, given that sort of point in time that you discussed earlier where CEOs are listening more to C- CTOs and CTOs are listening right. to the actual on the front line That's coders. Right. It was, it's a very smart way of talking around the product in a sense that a lot of those technical folks in my experience are also semi-allergic or very highly allergic to what they perceive as anything salesy. So you're able to yes. sort of bring them into the fold without directly explicitly selling anything. Yes. Well, this actually brings me to kind of the second thing that I was uh, going to mention uh, in terms of the, the other kind of um, helpful consequence of uh, kind of marketing ourselves this way, which is it actually kind of created better incentives for us. Because uh, if you think about sort of more traditional marketing, uh, and by the way, to be clear, I'm not dismissing in any way kind of traditional sales and marketing. I mean, Stripe has salespeople and marketing people, and you know, they <laughs> uh, they're immensely important in in uh, sort of uh, in you know, the organization we're now building today. Um, and, and so I, I'm kind of specifically talking about kind of strategies to kind of get started in the early days and to kind of get some initial traction. Anyway, that's it. And the super valuable thing about sort of uh, pursuing these kind of non-traditional channels is if you think about a traditional marketing organization and kind of what it's or, or traditional marketing in general and kind of what the incentives are, the incentives are to kind of uh, talk up the product. Uh, or to kind of pre-announce things ahead of when they're actually ready. Because if you're sort of talking at people and, you know, showing them these fancy presentations or whatever, uh, but they're not actually using the product directly, you know, if if they find out sort of a year later that it sucks, well, you know, that that's kind of fine, or at least it's fine in the short term, um, uh, because, you know, you've already got the revenue for the sale or something. Whereas if you have to compete on the merits of the product um, and just kind of rely on on people kind of being honest about how well it works or doesn't, that kind of forces you to just build a kind of product development organization that can compete. And so it might be harder to kind of get that initial traction. But if you can get there, you actually really have kind of an upper hand relative to kind of more traditionally incentivized companies because they've probably gotten a bit lazy and a bit ossified um, and just a bit less competitive on this axis. And once you can make the battle about the quality of your product and the quality of your product development, um, you know, if you if you can get the the, the battle fields to be sort of uh, 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 on that axis, you really have a huge advantage. Uh, and our experience was that the incumbents just couldn't react. Um, and, you know, they, they kind of realized that Stripe was kind of getting some traction and starting to get some mindshare and developers and startups were starting to use it. And what's really amazing to me is kind of how little happened. Uh, and I think it's not because, I mean, obviously for a while they just kind of dismissed us, but even after they stopped dismissing us, uh, it you, know, you you can't just kind of click your fingers and be like, okay, now we're going to start creating good products. Um, it's such a, a deep um, cultural and organizational thing that uh, it's, it's it's very difficult for competitors or potential competitors to shift there. Whereas if you just have a better marketing campaign, that's super easy to copy. Um, uh, anyone else can you know, buy a competing billboard or pay more for the Google ads or whatever. And so um, again, the we didn't kind of realize all this in advance, but I think that ended up uh, really helping us. Yeah. I, I want to underscore something you just mentioned briefly, which is Google ads, right? This is well, two things. Number one is that 
if I look back at the however many at this point, 70 plus startups in my own investment experience, the vast majority of overperformers focused almost to the exclusion of, of PR and marketing on product mm -hmm. in the early days. Yep. And yes. number two is if I look at the bottom performing, say, decile of companies, they almost all got very distracted by PR and marketing, particularly in the first year or two, generally first year of existence, especially if they were blessed, in other words, cursed with a, a lot of high praise from yes. outlets in one or two pieces. It's very seductive as a siren totally. song. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, the, the, the last thing I wanted to say, just to underscore something you mentioned, which is really important, is if your customer acquisition is predicated on paid acquisition, yes. <laughs> that makes you a, just a sitting duck for incumbents exactly. who, who have larger budgets. Yes. Uh, and they can just decide to bleed chips for a period of time until you run out of chips. Yes. Uh, so, so, yeah, it's really, really important. So I'm glad you, you mentioned it. There's always a kind of a seductive psychological temptation where if something isn't growing to tell yourself that it's because, well, you know, I haven't invested enough in distribution. Uh, it's kind of harder to uh, sort of uh, come to realize or to tell yourself that, well, you know, maybe our baby is just a bit too ugly. Uh, and so I think kind of people are just very psychologically biased uh, towards um, sort of blaming anything about growth on, uh, on things that sound like sales or marketing. Um, and then the, yeah, I, guess, I mean, kind of r related to um, what you just said, uh, one of the just really strange facts about the world, and I don't kind of fully understand why this is the case, uh, is how hard it is for organizations to build good software. Um, and, I, you know, I know that sounds strange in that, I mean, lots of organizations build some software, but like, it is just really weird, right? You know, if you, th if you think about sort of what a, what a really good website or iOS application or whatever it kind of is and feels like, um, it's really strange. I mean, it's not easy to build a really good website or iOS app or whatever, um, but it's not rocket science. And given that it's not rocket science, um, wh why are there so few of them? Um, like, just think of kind of any big major company um, and think of their website or app. Like it's probably pretty bad. Um, it's kind of janky. <laughs> it looks old. Like the animations already work right. It's kind of, it's laggy, all this stuff, right? But that's weird. Um, they probably have, uh, they probably have a nice building, a nice headquarters. Um, and, you know, if they, like there, there are many things they can decide to do and, and just like do it pretty competently. They can kind of turn their capital advantage uh, into a uh, into a sort of an advantage in some other area. Um, like if they, um, I don't know, if they want to, if they want to have a great fleet of cars, you know, they can very reliably turn capital into a great fleet of cars. Um, but for some reason, they can't seem to turn, and in fact, they can probably even turn capital into like a, a cool advertising campaign. Um, you know, there's, there's enough good agencies. Um, but for whatever reason, they can't turn capital into good software. Um, and, and, you know, it would be immensely valuable for them if they could, but they can't, um, or at least they don't. 
Uh, and I don't think it's for lack of trying or lack of uh, kind of realizing this. And so I think actually small companies don't realize um, how much of an upper hand they have here, uh, where if they can create a product that is kind of um, so much better than the status quo that they start to get sort of organic traction, once you attach a real sales and marketing engine to that, it's going to be really freaking hard uh, for a big company to effectively compete. Um, be- because, again, this kind of organizational transformation into being good at software is just uh, is just so profoundly hard. Another place that I've seen a lot of would-be entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs spend a lot of time on company name and brand. Okay, so... <laughs> You know, I was joking with, I was joking with Chris Saka earlier via text, and I was just saying I, I'm really impressed with the phenomenal outcomes and very rocky beginnings with like difficult names that you guys have had with companies. <laughs> oh God! So you have Octomatic. Right, yes. which which I'm sure was not always spelled correctly by people, not not uniformly. No, and stri- Stripe. I, what can you just give us a, a a brief description of the original name of what would later become Stripe, uh, and just like walk us through some early iterations? Because I want sure. and the re, what I'm what I'm hoping to do here, and I don't want to make this too leading of an introduction to what you're going to say, but is that. You, you're, like the the future of your company is probably not going to hinge entirely on the first name that you give it is where I'm trying to go with this um, and the product can, the, so so maybe you could just do, tell a bit of the story we, we are definitely a powerful example that uh, um, that as you say it is not uh, and so stripe was originally incorporated as um, slash dev slash finance Inc. Uh, spelled S L A S H D E V S L A S H etc. Um, like the it was the slashes are actually spelled out and and the reason for that is uh, you know we well it's it's a long story I won't bore you with it it was like a, a programming joke but you know we thought it was funny um, uh, I think it was uh, the the rest of the world you know to to, to our uh, shock and surprise did not quite find it as funny as we did um, and uh, uh, and the um, the, the first name of the product was uh, slash dev slash payments uh, because, you know, we, we sort of wanted a slightly broader company name than product name. Um, and, uh, and, you know, extremely confusingly, uh, while the company had all this S-L-A-S-H stuff spelled out, the product was just devpayments.com. And so kind of the, the naming schemas didn't even really match. Uh, and so, you know, we would have these meetings and, we describe what we do, and we're already fighting an uphill battle here. I mean, you know, we were, um, as John says, uh, sort of, um, you know, three squirrels in a trench coat, sort of trying to masquerade as like a, <laughs> a real thing, uh, and like <laughs> evading all these questions about, you know, where exactly is your headquarters, and you know, how do we say, how do we not say our bedroom uh, in a way that's not a lie, um, and um, uh, or yeah, you know, how do we say we have uh, an open floor plan? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yes, um, uh, yeah, we we really embrace remote work. Um, um, uh, so we were already finding a bit of an uphill battle. Um, and, you know, then at the end of the meeting or something, you know, they'd ask us our name or for our business card or something. We'd have to hand over this thing that, you know, it doesn't even look like a company name. They'd look at it as like, oh, but, you know, what's the company name called? We're like, actually, sorry, sir, it's this thing. Anyway, so it was just, it was all bad. Um, and uh, not only did people often misspell us, but it was kind of a moment of celebration if anyone ever correctly spelled it. Uh, and so we kind of um, came to accept the need for... Um, for a name change, um, 
and naming things, as I'm sure you know, is is pretty hard. Uh, and so I, I remember, I think it was the winter of 2010, which was a, a very wet winter out in California, unusually. And I just remember all these kind of dark evenings at the office where as soon as you kind of got stuck with your code or with some problem or something, you, um, we would have sort of a little discussion about, well, what could we name this company? And we had all these books around the office. I mean, just all sorts of random stuff. Um, and so you, you just page through them and like come up with a word and and you know toss it out to the group and be like, well, should we call our our, our company this? And so I remember John uh, was uh, trying to learn how to ride a motorcycle, and so we had a motorcycle repair manual, and so we had a lot of mo- motorcycle words. Should we call the company Carburetor? Uh, uh, which uh, fortunately did not make the cut. Um, so it was not going well, as you're hearing. Uh, we eventually decided to write a little script uh, to sort of just like come up with kind of random um, potential names and, and actually to, to kind of check whether the relevant domain names were available uh, uh, because, you know, it was important for an online company that we kind of have the .com domain. Um, and I can't even remember how, but Stripe is one of the words that ended up sort of on our list of names to check. Um, I think we were just at some point trying to think up kind of single monosyllabic English words that didn't have some kind of strong pre-existing association. Um, and Stripe, it turns out, was available, you know, relatively cheaply. It was, you know, it was, I think, ten or $20,000, uh, which, you know, that's not cheap um, in, in, in you know, some sense. But uh, uh, com- compared to the costs we were living of having a terrible name, it seemed like a good deal. Uh, that's, that's what, and, year, what year was this? This was like 2010. So that's astonishing to me. That's actually, I mean, for a dictionary word that is a noun that recognizable, that's astonishing. Did you did you negotiate or have someone negotiate on your behalf, or was that the opening offer they made to sell? Honestly, I'd, ha- I'd have to go back to check the details, um, but but there wa- there wasn't a big lengthy negotiation. Um, there was maybe wow. a, a, a little bit of back and forth. Yeah, no, we we really lucked out. I mean, what helped us, of course, is we weren't wet at any of these names, right? Uh, you know, if, if if the guy had said, you know, it's two hundred thousand dollars, well, you know, that would have been exactly two seconds of thought, and we'd have moved on to something else. And, on you know, on lot, the carburetor.co.uk. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, so it really helped that you know we, we were we were happy to entertain anything at all. Um, and uh, and the, the last thing worth mentioning there is, you know, we okay, we bought the domain and um, uh, started to you know rename all of our code and the website and everything. And then one day in early January, we kind of flipped the switch and everything became Stripe. Um, but we we somehow on the checklist of all the things to change and do, we neglected to add uh, an entry for tell our customers. Um, and so. You know, people woke up in the morning to go to devpayments.com and check their sales and whatever, and you know they get redirected to Stripe.com, and so we got a lot of sort of confused customers being like, "Are you guys hacked? Have you been fished? You know what's going on here?" Um, fortunately, back in January 2011, we had very few customers, uh, and so when I say we got these emails from customers, I mean probably all five of our customers emailed us, uh, so it was not a huge customer support burden. <laughs> what uh, I do want to talk about maybe perhaps some inflection points for the company, uh, since you, you certainly have more than five customers now. Uh, I mean, you have, what is it, 80% of American adults have purchased something from a business powered by Stripe. Now, I know that doesn't mean that there right. are 80% of American adults are Stripe customers per se, yeah, but, that's you, right. that's but right. you now have millions of businesses in 130 plus countries. So something right. happened between those two points in time. Yes. <laughs> but so it'd be easy to talk about a lot of the highlights, a lot of the inflection points, and we will do that. But lest this 
appear like it has been home run after home run every time you've stepped up to bat. What I'd love to talk about, if you're willing, are some of the harder periods, maybe near-death experiences, moments of doubt, and to, to make it as personal as possible, right? So not necessarily in abstract about the company going through a tough time, but periods when you have struggled. And uh, to give us one or two examples of that and then how you kind of found your way out of that period would be, I think, uh, certainly of interest to me and hopefully would help humanize the uh, otherwise seemingly superhuman uh, Patrick Collison. This could also be a personal period. Could be right, could right. have been high school, college, a difficult family situation. Could be anything. I will. Uh, I'll give kind of the stripe version, the personal version. Um, so, um, so, so, so kind of with those caveats um, on the uh, on sort of the, the stripe side, just the, the, the thing that I think is kind of important to communicate is, despite things having been relatively smooth in that macro sense, it often is just extremely hard um, and. I remember sort of early on after I remember after one particular meeting back in, um, I don't know, 2011, 2012, uh, um, like just after the meeting, the API broke. Uh, and so, you know, so the API of, application programming interface, could you just, yeah, sorry. Just explain uh, what that like, is. Like the, kind of the, the core Stripe payments engine broke. And so our customers just couldn't get paid, um, and couldn't accept payments from their customers. Um, and, you know, we didn't have many customers back then. Maybe there were 100 or something. Uh, but, but you know, there was still 100 businesses. It felt like a huge deal. Um, and, and, you know, we fixed it. It was only down for me 30 minutes or something. But I remember feeling kind of really bad about that. And then I just remember kind of – it wasn't like there was something kind of particularly special about that day. But um, I remember just kind of, I guess, reflecting on the sort of enormity of the challenges that, you know, we would face in the future and all the work we still had to do and all the stuff that was still broken and all the people we had to hire and all the customers we'd have to convince to use us that, you know, we had not yet convinced. And I, it was just kind of this moment of vertigo. Um, and... Uh, I mean, I just remember being kind of immensely dispirited uh, and kind of talking to John about, well, you know, is there really actually any point in doing this? Um, and again, what, what's kind of uh, important to me about that moment is not that kind of things were actually all that bad, but, but kind of the opposite. Objectively, they were fine. That day wasn't really much worse than the previous day. But I think the kind of the, there's this kind of inevitable thing when you're creating something where on the one hand you have to be kind of very optimistic um, because if you weren't optimistic you wouldn't bother doing it especially in the face of such hardship and uncertainty um, you also have to be very pessimistic because you have to I mean there are tons of problems and you have to be kind of very um, kind of tuned to spotting them so you can go fix them and so you kind of exist in this kind of superposition this juxtaposition of kind of pessimism and optimism and you're kind of an extreme on both axes uh, and that's just like a weird psychological state. Um, and to remain in it, as you must, for kind of many years is it's just not normal. And you're kind of you're always sort of necessarily over extrapolating from limited data because, again, you kind of should be in that, like, you know, one particular customer decides not to use you or one particular person leaves the company or, you know, just like some small thing happens. But you kind of have to be really asking yourself, well, is this a trend? Is there has something changed? Um, is something systemically broken? Whatever. Uh, and because you're kind of always extrapolating from from these bad things, uh, 
while maintaining this kind of long-term optimism, um, I think that is just a, a recipe for for real, uh, you know, psychological you know hardship. Um, and you know, I don't want to overstate it in that you know the, the kind of there's all the obvious sort of um, I don't know uh, acknowledgements about you know we're immensely lucky uh, among the luckiest people in history to have, you know, food and shelter and health and all these things. Uh, but, you know, uh, uh, humans hedonically, uh, the, the hedonic treadmill is very powerful and we rapidly adapt to kind of take all those for granted. And so the fact that uh, maybe in the scheme of things, we should feel very grateful and lucky and you can kind of, I don't know, tell yourself this narrative to try to keep things in perspective. The reality is that uh, it is just kind of pretty pummeling. Uh, on an ongoing basis, even for Stripe, which perhaps from the outside might look like this kind of really neat little story. Um, there, there have been kind of many such moments where it just seems hard. Now, that, what did the conversation look like with John that day? Do you, um, do you recall any of the specifics? I mean, was it was it more commiseration so you could get out of your system? Were you actually talking to him to determine if you right. should proceed or not? What was, was what, what, yeah. what did that look like? It was more the the former, like more this just um, sort of general dejection. We didn't seriously think about um, stopping. Uh, I think both of us are, it's less that I think we're both really determined and more I think we're just um, stubborn. Uh, and, and so the idea of stopping just, it, it didn't seem like a... Just, I guess it didn't feel like an option for us. I don't know. D- d- determination sounds glamorous to me, and I- I'm not sure we-, we-, we have that, but I think we're just dogged. Um, but, but yeah, it- it's more like, you know, p- people have different kind of emotional sort of cycles, and kind of his sine wave was kind of displaced from mine. And so fortunately, and, you know, he's a pretty cheery guy. Uh, that day when I was super dejected, he was, uh, uh, you know, in his, um, uh, I don't know, chipper way, he was, uh, he was telling me, ah, it'll be fine. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you give it another 24 hours or something and, you know, the world looks a bit different. This, this something you mentioned just a few moments ago, I, I think is, uh, worth trying to reiterate to make sure I understand it, uh, which is the importance. I mean, the existential importance in the case of a lot of startups, <laughs> uh, of being able to, remain consistently optimistic enough that you can summon the energy and doggedness to continue while also being very good at envisioning problems and worst case scenarios and bad outcomes so that you can avert them. Right. And yes, it's tricky. It's really tricky. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it's true also for, a, I, yeah, go ahead. Well, and it's, it's tricky. It's, it's kind of not natural. Um, and it's, it's not a kind of mindset that I think most normal situations in the world kind of train you to have. Yeah. And it, and it can be really, really stressful. This is something I've observed not only in founders, but also in a lot of investors, uh, particularly yes. those who can make money by betting on in some fashion, uh, apocalyptic or black swan events that cause a lot of damage uh, or that are very scary and people who are not just betting on the long side but betting on the short side and i mean of course we get into derivatives and stuff like that but it's uh it's they they're thinking about the edge cases that could really be 
yes. uh, catastrophic uh, for yeah. for them yeah, and or others. Right. Uh, I, I, although when you're starting a company, you sort of have to be kind of both the sort of super long optimistic, you know, I'm just going to buy this stock and hold it for decades trader. Um, and you kind of have to be the sort of the, the catastrophic, you know, um, Taleb style, you know, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, uh, sort of catastrophe trader. And you're, you kind of have to be both. And that's just weird. Uh, and, uh, I guess the thing that I think is maybe important to understand for folks is, uh, it's kind of intuitive that if a company or, or a new effort of any sort is not going well, that things will feel hard and you'll often feel dejected and life, uh, at least insofar as work goes is not great. Um, but the weird part is that even if things are going well uh, and the effort or the company or whatever is succeeding, things will still often not feel great. Um, and no one sort of told me that before I started. Uh, um, I I sort of thought that, well, if the company is succeeding, then clearly it's going to be, I don't know, not necessarily fun, but at least um, sort of it, it, it'll feel good day to day. Whereas the actual reality is that you're always necessarily operating at the kind of outer edge of what you can handle, uh, because you know if there was if you'd spare capacity, you just take on more, um, and so you're kind of therefore inevitably always, you know, on, on the cusp of feeling like you're you're sort of going to fall over, uh, and you know even as we record this podcast, uh, I mean at, at this kind of moment, I, I I feel sort of right on the edge of uh, what I'm what I'm able to handle, and on the one hand, I sort of I don't wish it were otherwise in that I, I sort of enjoy testing myself and kind of finding my limits um, and, and developing and stretching myself. But on the other hand, you know, when you stretch your muscles, that's painful. <laughs> well, it, it also makes me think of a conversation uh, I had with uh, Laird Hamilton, who's a, one of the most legendary big wave surfers of all time. And I remember I was chatting with him. He's got to be, I don't know how old he is. He's, he's one of those guys who sort of defa defies any type of expectation of age affecting performance. I think he's in his mm -hmm. early 50s, but um, still goes hunt hunting for some of the biggest waves in the world. And I remember I was chatting with him at one point, and he said he'd been tooling around on some easy waves earlier that day. And I, I asked him roughly how big he thought they were. And he was like, ah, you know, 20, 25 feet. And he's like, once it gets to 20, you can start to have fun. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he's like, once you get to 30s, like you, you really like, kind of want to watch yourself. It's like, once you get to over 50, you're really not allowed to fall. And mm. uh, it's when you are, uh, and I've never been in this position, but having spent a lot of time around founders and very fast growing companies, when you do have at least the perception, and which I think is reflective of reality, that you are effectively always on the edge of redlining because, as you said, if you have extra capacity, you open the door to fill that capacity. Who are some of the people you've leaned on or who have been helpful, alive or dead or otherwise? Mm. I'm not sure what otherwise would be in that case, but uh, <laughs> zombie, uh, to help you navigate this or learn how to surf that kind of wave because right. it is it is fucking unimaginable for most people i've i've only seen it as a spectator really what it takes to to kind of have your face pressed up against the windshield right. in the in the formula 1 car that is a stripe or an uber or any of these companies it's it's really hard to fathom what it what it takes and how much it right. resembles a professional sport. <laughs> so, right. so, 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 who, well, who, who, or what has been helpful in learning to navigate that? 
Well, um, maybe just before answering that, uh, to kind of add something to what we were just talking about, though it, it relates to what you just asked. Um, there's, there's a period in um, in my life where uh, you know I did feel a bit not really lost, but um, you know it, it certainly wasn't clear exactly what direction I was going in, um, and so um, we sold our first company. And uh, I lived in Vancouver for a while, uh, worked for that company, kind of exploring some other stuff as well. This is and the live group the, media. Exactly, yep. Um, and then I moved to live with my then girlfriend uh, in Zurich. Um, and so I lived in Switzerland for a while. Uh, and then and then I actually went back to college because I dropped out of college pretty early. And um when I went to school, I sort of thought, well, maybe I want to become like a physicist or a mathematician or something like that. And, you know, who knows how successful, if at all, I would have been. Maybe maybe I wouldn't even have made the cut, but you know, I kind of had that ambition, um, aspiration. Uh, and, and I sort of felt that you know, we'd started the company so early and it happened so quickly that I hadn't kind of really fully tested whether that was kind of a good idea or not. Uh, and so I went back to college for a second time um, to kind of do mostly math and physics. Um and so did that. And then while there, John was also in college at the same time. That's kind of when we you know, went to start Stripe. But if you'd looked at that kind of two-year period, it was uh, drop out of college, start this company, move to Vancouver, move to you know, this other country, go back to college, then start this other company. And like when we started Stripe, it did not seem very promising. I mean, it seemed like this you know, silly little developer payments thing. And again, it was another two years before it even launched. And so maybe that whole kind of four-year period, I think, to many people who knew me um, or, or just kind of were around, like it, I'm sure it looked kind of pretty scattered, um, kind of weirdly planned, maybe misdirected. Um, and, and, you know, they, they wouldn't be entirely wrong. I mean, I certainly was not kind of pursuing some, some grand master plan. Uh, and I think I was actually really lucky where, you know, from, from sort of an early age, my parents were very okay with, uh, myself and John sort of charting our own course. And, you know, you get these kind of real sort of hothouse environments where you know, there's a lot of pressure to, you know, go to this school, go to this college, you know, pursue this career path, whatever. You, you really kind of feel like you're on these kind of narrow train tracks. Uh, and I would say that our upbringing was kind of the opposite, um, where really our parents, even when we wanted to make sort of very ostensibly kind of strange and surprising decisions, our, our parents kind of supported us. And you know, so when I was uh, uh, a 15-year-old and wanted to take a year off school to kind of just like program full-time, you know, my parents were supportive of that. Um, uh, or when I wanted to sort of sort of drop out of school to go take this, you know, totally different exam system. My parents were okay with that. And so I, you know, we kind of had this upbringing where our parents supported us in that way. And when in my kind of, you know, teens, early twenties was kind of, um, trying to figure out what the kind of right direction was. Um, the, I wouldn't say that that was kind of a lost period, but it was, uh, again, it was, it was definitely a highly exploratory one. And, and so just kind of to your question of, you know, periods of real hardship, I think a lot of people either don't get the opportunity to sort of explore multiple directions like that, or they're kind of, um, uh, either others don't give them the opportunity or they sort of, they don't kind of give themselves the permission uh, to just kind of have a few, you know, slightly lost years where the narrative isn't super clear. Um, 
And those periods can be hard because kind of by definition, you're not exactly sure where they're going. And it's very kind of disorienting to not know where you're sailing um, and, and, and you can and do feel a bit adrift. And so looking back on that, I actually feel like it was kind of really important in kind of giving me confidence and perspective. But at the time, it, it definitely felt a bit unmoored. Well, I think that you... I think this is really important for a number of reasons. Uh, the first is that, and this is going to sound like a fortune cookie, but there there is a quote I can't I can't recall who it's attributed to. I, I want to say Emerson, but Emerson's kind of like Abraham Lincoln on the internet. It's like everything gets attributed, <laughs> yes. but you know, it's him or Oscar Wilde. That's right, right. So not not all. Uh, not all who wander are lost, right? So there's a difference mm. between being lost, which is you have a destination and you have gone off track or you are preoccupied with where you are currently located and don't know where you're located versus exploring and wandering. Um, yes. the, the second, uh, which is, I, I suppose, more a follow-up question than a point, is is this. I'm very curious how your parents, uh, and maybe you could also just tell us a little bit about what your parents did professionally or how they spent their time, but how your parent, what your parents did to cultivate excellence or clear and or clear thinking Mm. without necessarily pigeonholing the direction of either of those. Right. So if you, if, if a biographer at some point is writing Mm. the story of your life, you give them unfettered access how might they they answer that? You know, what are the what what are examples yeah. they might give? Things your parents said, uh, annual routines that you guys right. had, or whatever. Anything that comes to mind. Well, um, we were kind of um, we, we we grew up in very rural Ireland, right? Um, uh, the kind of the middle of the countryside, um, surrounded by kind of farms and fields, uh, and you know, we we were kind of really we had to kind of figure out ourselves what was going to be entertained painting and interesting and fun. Uh, it wasn't just kind of provided, um, you know, to us by the environment. Um, and so we kind of grew up as these sort of free range children. Um, and we were lucky where, uh, there were lots of books in the house and we, you know, read those pretty voraciously. Um, you know, our, our parents, uh, I, I guess I'd say that the thing that our parents did is, <laughs> There's a million things, but the, the, the kind of the two that really, um, the three that stand out are, they kind of showed us the world. They took us to the library every day. They sort of took us, you know, traveling in the summers. They, um, if there were interesting guests coming over for dinner, we weren't kind of you know dispatched, uh, you know, upstairs or told to get an early dinner before the adults came. We were sort of thrust right into the middle. So they kind of really took us seriously and showed us the world. Um, the second thing is they they really gave us kind of agency on autonomy uh, and kind of treated us as adults. And, you know, that, that was kind of, it went two ways. And that on the one hand, they gave us a lot of freedom. On the other hand, they kind of expected quite a lot of us. And so our youngest brother had to get some pretty major surgery in the U.S. back when John and I were, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 or thereabouts. Uh, and so they were gone to the U.S. for um, several weeks, um, maybe more than a month. Uh, and we were left mostly alone um, for for that month. Uh, we had a, you know, a neighbor who checked in on us every day and you know made sure things were, were fine, but we spent most of the time alone uh, when we weren't at school. Um, and, you know, they, from from myself and John's standpoint, that was fantastic. Uh, you know, we, we really, I don't know, we, we loved the freedom. Um, but, of course, they reciprocally expected us, you know, not to um, to kind of, uh, not to give them cause to, to regret it. Um, and 
And then the third thing is, you know, whenever we kind of expressed interest in something, um, they uh, they really sort of um, tried to find opportunities to kind of, you know, when there was a small shoot of interest, they looked for opportunities to water it. But they never sort of thrust those opportunities on us, or I never felt that kind of, or, or rather, they never thrust the interest on us. I never felt that I was sort of uh, following a track laid down by somebody else. And so I remember kind of randomly mentioning when I was uh, 12 or 13 that um, learning, uh, I don't even remember why I thought this, but that learning ancient Greek seemed interesting. Um, I, I think I just like read some Homer or something, I mean, a translation, um, and uh, and the, I know, the language seemed interesting. And I was just, you know, saying that as some kind of I don't know, random throwaway remark, I guess, the way a kid does. And sure enough, my mom went and found somebody at like literally a local monastery uh, who was willing to teach ancient Greek. Uh, and uh, and then she told me about this. Um, and so for, like for two years, I went to that monastery once a week after school and like learned ancient Greek. Uh, and that interest never went, you know, super far. Um, uh, I, I I haven't read much ancient Greek in you know, the last 10 years. Uh, um, <laughs> Me neither. But, but, but you know, <laughs> yeah, but, but it, was, it, was, it was the kind of thing they did. And, you know, obviously some other interests like programming, you know, um, uh, they kind of really took hold in a deeper way. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I don't have kids today, but um, I, I do kind of reflect a lot on the kind of childhood we had because, you know, it was pretty different in multiple regards to uh, sort of the childhoods of, of the people around us. And like, especially... When I got to college in the U.S., it was sort of so foreign for me, the idea that, like, people were so laden with extracurriculars and sort of burnishing their college resumes, you know, from age 12 or earlier. Um, and the kind of the, the period of, of uh, sort of you know, teenagerhood and adolescence was kind of so intense, whereas uh, for myself and John, it really felt uh, kind of exploratory um, and that we were um, given a – that our parents were kind of um, – life coaches or yeah, like mentors while we were yeah exactly while we were roaming um but that kind of all the yeah exactly i, I think that they, that they were playing a supporting role rather than you know having us be kind of <laughs> uh you know with, with, with these friends in college it felt like they were kind of at the front of a locomotive and the locomotive is speeding along down the tracks and they're just kind of hanging on for dear life being you know pushed along by the um by the the little cattle protector when uh, when you had these dinners uh th this is something that is that has popped up a few times in conversations with a number of folks on the podcast uh, that that parents had them included Mm -hmm. in uh, specifically dinner discussions when interesting house guests would come over. Hmm. Uh, that's interesting. I, I never... Yeah. It, it, that, it's interesting that that's commonality. It, huh. It's come up a few times. Not dozens of times, but enough where it it piques my curiosity to, to hmm. dig into it a bit. Would your parents encourage you to ask questions? Would sure. they... Uh, was there... And actually, just so people can paint a picture in their own minds, what did both of your parents work? One of them, what yeah. did they do professionally or how did they spend their time? Just so we have uh, a little context. Yeah. Um, so um, both of them worked. Um, uh, uh, our dad... Most of our childhood ran a small kind of lakeside hotel um, and 24 bedrooms. Um, and so he was kind of, um, it was a, a few miles from our house and he spent a lot of time there. 
Uh, and, and of course, for us as kids, I mean, it was super exciting. I mean, this hotel was like this was this giant playground as far as we were concerned. You know, I think the staff didn't always appreciate that, but um, we loved roaming around it and uh, going and sliding around the you know polished uh, uh, function room floor and all the rest. Uh, and our mom started a, a corporate training company uh, back um, right around the time I was born. I think she she, she, um, she had left her previous job and then I was born and you know I think after a couple of weeks she decided well I don't know this kid isn't that interesting uh, and so from the house she decided to start this company that uh, would kind of provide um, corporate quality management training and so you've probably heard these acronyms like ISO 9000 these kind of certification programs that sure. kind of yeah yeah um, and so kind of there are all these American multinationals setting up shop in Ireland uh, and there's kind of a lot of appetite for uh, sort of making sure they were kind of doing things properly and well and so on. And so she started this business, uh, again, providing the, this training. And so basically all through my childhood, um, she was running this business, um, uh, well, for, for much of it out of her house. And then they kind of got a, got a separate office. Um, but but sort of it was it was always uh, part of the picture. And so kind of from our standpoint, starting a company was really not some kind of strange foreign thing. It was it was. It was pretty normal. I think whatever your parents do is kind of almost, you know, from, from the child's perspective is just kind of is normal. I'm, I'm sure if our parents had been astronauts, you know, being an astronaut would just seem like a totally normal career. Uh, <laughs> and so um, so that's what they did. Mm-hmm. It, and you mentioned travel. Uh, mm-hmm. Could you, was it, uh, could, is there a particular yeah. trip that comes to mind? And I'd be curious, there are many different ways to travel and there, just as there are many different ways to live and choose places to live and so on. So we, we, we probably won't have time to get into how your uh-huh. parents ended up where you grew up if they were started there or ended up there, which is a whole separate side of things. But, yes. uh, could you describe perhaps a particularly memorable trip uh sure and how you traveled with your parents like what what that looked like um yeah so so we went almost every summer uh camping in europe and so we'd take the ferry to europe uh which you know from ireland obviously isn't that far um, and we'd bring you know a some tents or, or a little caravan um, and we just go kind of driving around the continent, staying at all these different uh, campgrounds. And Europe uh, ha- turns out to kind of have all these really great, nice campgrounds. Almost every town has one. Uh, and so we'd you know, stay a few days here, maybe a week there and so on. And it would be France and uh, Germany and Austria and Hungary and Italy and whatever. Um, and I have these kind of incredibly fond memories of, uh, of those trips. And I mean, they'd be like a, you know, a month long. Uh, and, and they were great, I guess, because they were kind of long enough that you didn't feel kind of pressed for time or like, okay, today we got to go see, you know, this, that, and the other, uh, you, you kind of shifted into just kind of camping mode. Um, and, uh, and there were enough changes of scenery and environment that, that you sort of just got to take a whole lot of different things in. Um, I mean, the, honestly, the other thing that was great about them is, uh, even though, um, you know, being in Ireland, there wasn't kind of a whole lot of distraction. We were able to just kind of you know read a lot or, or um, kind of focus on our own things. On these trips, you you could f- focus and read even more. Uh, and so, honestly, the ma- the most kind of vivid memories I have mostly of these trips, it's not sort of going to see the such and such or so and so. It's like particular books that I read. Um, and I mean, I remember you know we kind of load up the the car and the caravan which is like heaps and heaps of books um and uh you know you'd have these long drives like you know eight hours ten hours uh and just kind of reading in the car the whole way mm-hmm. 
as I'm listening to your stories and more about your childhood and, and so on, uh, a lot of which is, is brand new to me, I'm simultaneously looking at a page on your website, patrickcollison.com forward slash advice. Mm. And uh, this this may not apply to everybody in my listenership. I think a lot of them do apply to many different age ranges, but it starts with if you're if you're 10 to 20, these are prime years. So <laughs> a lot of folks will fall outside of that, but I wanted to touch on a few of these. Sure. Um, and one is, all right, so the, 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 these two kind of go together, but uh, one is make things and then there's a line following it. Uh, but then following up on that, it says more broadly, nobody is going to teach you to think for yourself. A large fraction of what people around you believe is mistaken. Internalize yes. this and practice coming up with your own worldview. Yep. The correlation between it and those around you shouldn't be too strong unless you think you were especially lucky in your initial conditions, or uh, this is my language. Now you choose your environment, like a place like San Francisco or whatever it might be. But yes. the, the, and I suppose even then, if the correlation is too high, you should be careful. Absolutely. Uh, for sure. But, for but, sure. But the, so my, my question here is uh, going to be a little meandering. So bear with me, but okay. There are people who seem to not, not care what other people think and develop their own worldviews because they have a predisposition uh, in that direction, in the sense that you can have a very good basketball player. There are certain skills you can work on to become a better basketball player. But if they say you should try as hard as possible to be tall, it's going to be difficult to change that attribute. There yes. are a lot of people in Silicon Valley who uh, are somewhere on the spectrum, let's say, and mm -hmm. have may actually have diagnosable, say, Asperger's, mm -hmm. which in some previous times could have been a very maladaptive trait yes. that would have uh, been a sort of selection criteria for removal from the gene pool that is now in this new context, in fact, uh, in some instances, a competitive advantage because their sort of lack of absorbing uh, worldviews from others or feeling that pressure enables them to come up with their own perspective yep. and orientation. So, yes. so if we filter those people out, right, because mm -hmm. the, they may be similarly difficult to imitate in a sense as a basketball player is to imitate in their height. How, how, uh, are there any books, any documentaries, any approaches, uh, or just any like mental models or mm. any, anything at all that people can use to internalize thinking for themselves, to to practice coming up with their own worldview. Like, what is what? What are your thoughts? Well, hmm, this is kind of the uh, <laughs> this is the big question, right? Um, uh, and yeah, maybe there are kind of two halves to it. What are heuristics you should have and use for kind of who and what to listen to? Uh, and then, yeah, secondly, separately, how do you how do you think for yourself? Um, and um, I think, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll start enumerating some particular heuristics or tricks. I'm not sure this is a complete answer, but the first is when you see a smart person, uh, holding a point of view and especially strongly holding a point of view that's kind of different to your own, rather than f trying to figure out how they're wrong, trying to, f I mean, 
that's valuable, but um, you, you'll, you'll inevitably do that. Uh, you're, you're kind of, um, you know, your, your, your emotional brain will ensure you do. Trying to figure out how they're right. Like, wh- what is a sensible worldview in which uh, what they believe or what they're saying actually kind of does make sense? And that doesn't mean they're right, but uh, sort of trying to figure out, like, if they're not stupid, why would they believe this? Um, and so, you know, I... Um, I'm personally, you know, very in favor of um, uh, kind of openness to immigration. I've obviously benefited from it myself. Um, uh, I, th- I think there should be more of it in the world. Um, but I think we can't just kind of dismiss uh, people who oppose immigration as kind of, you know, nativist bigots. Uh, I think we're going to have to ask the questions and just try to understand, well, what could or would cause somebody to harbor concerns there, right? So that that's one sort of trying to figure out what worldview um, uh, helps, uh, have a view make sense. Um, a second one is, and we kind of touched on this at the beginning of the conversation, just exposing yourself to more worldviews. Um, because I, th- I think a lot of people, well, everyone finds it more comfortable to be around kind of views that accord with your own and models that accord with your own. And so there's a kind of deliberate seeking out of discomfort. Um, and you know, I do some of this myself uh, in kind of who I follow on Twitter and what I read and, and even who I spend time with, sort of trying to make sure that uh, like I, I expose myself to people who have kind of smart, thoughtful and really like pretty different perspectives um, on, on, on uh, uh, important matters. Can you, um, I have to pause because this, yeah. this just seems uh, too fertile to let go quickly. Uh, are there any people on Twitter you could hmm. give as examples. You just said um, they're smart and thoughtful, so you're, it's it's right. not uh, you know you're already complimented. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. But um, with, you know, um, we, we could also a, bookmark and come back to it if it's yeah, hard to come up with. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I've a um, let me see if I can think of a few. Um, um, l- 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 let me think about that and come back. Um, yeah, no problem. Uh, but but it, 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 it's a good question. Um, I, and maybe the other one is. Uh, the kind of general heuristic or, or habit here or something is um, just to not get mad and to not get offended uh, in that, you know, outrage and offense and anger are, they're, they're sometimes useful, of course, um, but I think they're sort of useful, um, they're less useful than, uh, uh, well, they are overutilized. Um, they're not sure. useful as often as they are invoked. Um, uh, and uh, and I think, for whatever reason, uh, the kind of the ability to not take offense and to kind of uh, to, to sort of inspect and to try to understand and to even try to kind of really. Um, extrapolate from an idea or a set of ideas or a worldview w- without taking offense at it. That's not something that for whatever reason is kind of really valued in our culture, but I think is actually super important. Uh, can you, uh, as, as um, 
you know, as has been said, uh, can you run an idea in emulation in your head? Like in in uh, in computers, people talk about you know running running VMs, right? I mean, AWS, you upload your software, your code, they run it on their servers, but they run it in emulation and they and they kind of in a little sandbox to make sure that uh, it can't kind of break out and affect other users' uh, applications. Um, uh, and so, kind of similarly, can you run an idea and scrutinize it and inspect it and kind of follow its consequences? Um, you know, without it kind of bleeding out uh, into kind of uh, the rest of your brain and sort of infecting your whole worldview. And I think the, the ability to, to, to do that without kind of getting angry or taking offense um, is, is really super powerful because if you can do that, you can then afford to kind of, in a way, you can be less careful about what ideas you, you, you inspect and scrutinize. Uh, and so you can just kind of, um, you can be much more sort of far reaching and, and kind of broadly ranging. Um, and then... Are there any people in your life or who you're aware of you particularly respect for being good at doing this? Uh, doing this meaning being non-emotionally reactive to opposing mm. opposing viewpoints. And I and I should say also I'm looking at your followers on Twitter, which people can find at Patrick C. That's your account. And I just want to give an example of two. <laughs> <laughs> Contrast. So you have one Harsh Sika, S-I-K-K-A, yes. bio, applying biological constraints to building intelligent, robust, and generalizable systems at Harvard, at Georgia Tech, at UC San Diego, right next to at uh, Rello Almighty, Almighty Rello, <laughs> and bio is Almighty Rello the Hustler, say hello to the bad guy, they say I'm a bad guy, dot, dot, dot. So those are <laughs> a, lot right. of pro- a lot of professors, a lot of researchers. Uh, also, here's a friend of mine you follow, um, Graham Duncan. Really interesting guy. Oh yeah, sure. He, he's yeah, he, he's he's awesome. Yeah. Um, uh, I made a list of some people I follow um, at uh, patrickcollison.com uh, slash people, um, and I wouldn't say that all of them are excellent at this at sort of um, uh, sort of not taking offense and at sort of trying to find the best in some particular idea um, or trying to find you know whatever truth is in it. Um, but I would say as a general matter, they are. Mm-hmm. And, uh, why is it, uh, when I look at some of your, uh, posts, I, I also have a Twitter list called reading, which is basically the, the, the same list, but it's of an easy, easy to follow format. Uh, and so, uh, you know, anyone can go follow that list. And I think actually a, a reasonable number of people now do. <laughs> And uh, you you seem to whether it's reading or people have an intense interest in. Uh, I'm looking at your patrickcollison.com forward slash people right now. Yeah, you do have some great. F- John Arnold is definitely worth checking out for a lot of mm-hmm. folks who will not recognize that name. Of course, Stuart Brand. Yeah, yep. lot, lots of lots of good people on this list. So I encourage people to check this out. But coming back to one name that popped up when I was looking on your Twitter account, which I think you also recently. Uh, shared uh, pseudo Erasmus at yes. pseudo Erasmus. So economic history and development economics. This feed contains yes. no current events, no political news, no culture, and no capital letters history of economic thought. <laughs> uh, why? Why do you seem so interested in economics, economic progress? Uh, in some cases. <sighs> Economic history certainly right. can seem very niche, but uh, yep. I suspect there's a lot more to uh, to to right. that. Uh, labor repression and the Indo-Japanese divergence is the pin tweet by Sudo Erasmus. <laughs> yes. why, why read so much of this type of stuff? Uh, because it's so important uh, in that um, the 
uh, arguably the single most important thing kind of about our lives compared to other lives that have been lived in human history uh, is that we have the immense good fortune to have been born in wealthy societies. Um, and that has had so many consequences in our lives, right? I mean, it means that our you know, our parents are way more likely to be alive. Our siblings are far more likely to be alive. Um, uh, we get to work on things we find sort of way more interesting than, you know, tilling in the field or foraging for bushes. Um, it means we're sort of exposed to kind of the full, you know, or a, a more complete picture of the kind of variety and complexity and um, uh, sort of uh, fascination or fascinating material of the world. Um, hey, I don't need to obviously enumerate all of this, but just like it's it's astounding compared to sort of all humans who ever lived, just how amazingly lucky we are. Um, and again, that luck is is that we were born into a wealthy society. And so I think kind of one of the most urgent and, and important moral questions um, is why doesn't everyone get to do that? And how can we change the world such that more people do? Um, last week, um, I was in... Africa. Um, I was in countries including Senegal and Ethiopia and Rwanda. Um, and those countries are obviously far less wealthy uh, than the US and the people there have far less opportunity. Um, and their lives are far less comfortable. Uh, and, and so I think there's, there's a real moral question. Um, what can we do to put them on, a, on an equal footing with us? And indeed, how can we raise the waterline for all of us such that, you know, while our lives are amazing compared to the people who lived, you know, before us, you know, th there's still tons of terrible things that happen. You know, people die of cancer um, and uh, people die of, you know, death caused by pollution. Um, and, you know, while some people in society today get, you know, fantastic educations and have the uh, good fortune to have, you know, great colleagues and meaningful work, you know, a lot of people don't, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so I see kind of economics and economic history as being really a kind of moral anthropology um, and sort of cultural analysis and structural analysis of, well, how do we solve this um, centrally, foundationally, um, uh, this question that, that really takes primacy? Mm -hmm. And if you, if uh, I want to thin slice this a little bit and dig, dig on, on this, because it, it's, it's something that I've thought a lot about without any concrete conclusions and I've bounced around quite a bit and, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. So the, the, the question that I'll want to ask, but I'll give some, some background on, on my personal experience is if, if, if we are using a term like economic progress or, or e economic prosperity, mm -hmm. uh, what the component pieces are of that, that have the, gr the greatest benefits and the fewest side effects. And the reason I phrase it that way is I've, I've also spent some time in Africa, not mm -hmm. in, uh, not certainly I, I would, I would doubt in as many countries as you have, but I've spent time in Kenya and spent time mm -hmm. in Ethiopia and in Ethiopia was mostly in the Tigray region in mm. some very, very poor areas. And yes. I was chatting with, uh, a lot of the folks we interacted with those who, those who spoke English or those with whom I could communicate through translator. And, uh, 
something that's one thing that struck me in Ethiopia was how much people smiled. Right? Yes. Now that doesn't mean they uh, don't need clean drinking water. It does not mean they wouldn't benefit from footwear in some instances. There are all sorts of uh, there are all sorts of not just comforts but necessities and infrastructure that would uh, almost certainly have tremendous upside and benefits with very few uh, downside um, yes. p- uh, possibilities. And I was talking to some people who lived in Tigray about how happy Ethiopians seem to be. And I heard on several occasions, it wasn't just one, these were in, in different locations, people say, oh yeah, people are really happy until they get TV. And I, <laughs> and I asked them why that was. And they said, well, once we get TV, we, they didn't use these words exactly, but in effect, once we can see the Kardashians and all of the amazing things and toys and cars and and fashion options that all these other people have, mm-hmm. we become dissatisfied with where we are and mm-hmm. what we have. So uh, th- that kind of stuck with me, and I didn't have a resolution to that necessarily. Yeah. Uh, but how do, how do you how do you think about yeah. which components you're trying to solve for or to optimize right. for? So I, I think happiness is is certainly kind of a um, a tricky measure, right? Um, and as you say, there's kind of this sort of sociological um, and kind of uh, comparative version of it. And, you know, the phenomenon is seen where kind of to some degree, uh, I guess there's another version or another way of saying what, what you just alluded to, which is the kind of uh, the happiness you have with your level of wealth is kind of a function of the wealth of those around you. Um, and so if you find out about more you know, people who are above you in some income table, um, uh, that, that might actually kind of uh, depress your, uh, your happiness slightly. Um, however, uh, it's also kind of pretty robustly the case uh, that, you know, there are some things that are just kind of absolute inputs into happiness uh, and that, you know, ha- kind of your health or chronic pain or, um, uh, whether your kids die or not or whatever, you know, the, the, these really do matter, right? Um, and and you know, I think, you know, in, in, in the example of Ethiopia, I mean, while kind of on the one hand, I think, you know, as, as I guess you saw, you know, it's not like um, you know, this is a country where sort of everyone is sort of in the perpetual depth of despair. Um, it does rank in the, uh, in the bottom half um, of sort of, you know, glo- global happiness surveys. Um, and, uh, uh, actually Max Roser has this, uh, you know, he does a lot of kind of uh, data visualization, uh, around kind of development economics, uh, and he has this wonderful visualization, this kind of scatter plot of happiness, uh, against, uh, kind of per capita income. And sure enough, what you see is it's certainly not a, a you know, a perfect correlation. There are all these other factors, maybe kind of cultural effects or these, again, uh, comparative questions and so on. But broadly speaking, the correlation uh, really is uh, very, very strong. And so um, I guess another version of maybe the kind of complexity you're getting at is when you look at this kind of th- these intertemporal comparisons, when you sort of look back at how people, how happy they reported themselves as being, you know, 60 years ago. Um, you know, obviously they had kind of, you know, inferior health outcomes or, um, they didn't have as many leisure options or they couldn't travel as much or whatever. So, you know, their kind of lives on some objective level were worse. Um, but you know, their, their happiness scores aren't that bad because, you know, I guess, you know, on some level they kind of didn't know, uh, what, what missing. Um, but I see that as more being a, um, more being 
something that's tricky about happiness surveys than something about kind of fundamental human well-being in that uh, if I like the, the fact that our baseline shifts as we realize that better is possible uh, does not mean that uh, the the gains are illusory. Uh, and uh, if, uh, you know, if if half of my kids died, but I still scored myself as being pretty happy because I didn't even realize that some, you know, that not having that happen, you know, was even an option. Uh, you know, I, I, such that uh, when that problem was solved, my kind of self-reported level didn't change that much as I, you know, adjusted to the new normal. I don't think that means that that gain, that improvement is not very, very real. Oh, sure. Totally. And, and I was, no, not uh, that that's what you're saying. I know. I think. I think yeah. the, the, the core point you're making about kind of the complexity of happiness surveys, I think, is 100 percent right. Yeah, it's it's very very slippery. And yes, uh, yes. The... Actually, Scott 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 Alexander, um, uh, Slate's our Codex, uh, has a really good blog post about just like the the trickiness of these kind of happiness surveys, where I think kind of the core message uh, and data from them is, is is kind of correct, but but kind of a lot of specific, uh, I think, interpretations and kind of comparisons we want to make are, are a little bit fraught. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I th- not to I don't want to cast aspersions on all social sciences or anything like that. But <laughs> a lot of it gets very squishy and it's so totally. highly multivariate when you're trying to op- yes. assess something like this in the field that even the definitions by which the Absolutely. polls or surveys are being conducted get very, very subjective. And uh, sure. I, I was looking at a, a recent National Geographic, uh, I suppose I would call it a poll. Uh, it was reasonably well constructed for what I could tell to try mm-hmm. to assess the happiest places on earth. And mm. what I found striking about it was, was, was not necessarily uh, the, uh, some of the, the front runners. Uh, although I, I did find how different they were interesting in the sense that you have, let's say Denmark, uh-huh. Sa- Singapore, which is yep. particularly interesting because it's so brand new in a lot of respects and it was kind of a grand experiment uh and costa rica very different places what i but what i found striking was that bhutan which Mm. is talked about all the time as uh among for lack of a better term kind of hippie new age circles Mm. as being Mm -hmm. very forward thinking because they focus on uh, what was it like a gross national happiness instead yes, of yes. GDP yes. is in fact one of the most unhappy places and mm. that uh, something like gross national happiness can be used as kind of a don't look at this thing in front of you look over here because we're focusing yes. on happiness. it can be looked it can be used as a distracting factor from yes. the from the things that are actually quantifiably bad um, yes so there's that. Uh, what have you found? I mean, in so we've talked about the, uh, I suppose the certain aspects of the uh, wide divergence of mm-hmm. economic prosperity yes. across the world. So the, the, my my question would then be, now what? Right? What are right. what are the levers to to pull? What actually matters? I mean, there are a, a lot of people squandering a lot of attention and energy trying to fix this in yeah. a thousand ways, 900 of which probably aren't going to amount to much. What are yeah. the, what are the Archimedes levers in, right. in a situation like this? Um, well, I guess the, the first thing I'd say is I think 
that question you just asked is the big question that I think we should all be obsessed with. Um, like I think, you know, the, I, I think you should ask every guest that question. Uh, I think people should be, uh, people in positions of influence or, um, uh, or where they can have, you know, great impact, like they should be obsessed with it. Um, it is the, uh, it, it's, it, it, it is an issue of true moral importance. Um, I don't think there's going to be any, uh, silver bullets, um, and, and kind of panaceas. Uh, and I mean, obviously Stripe is kind of, you know, um, one iron in that fire, uh, where with Stripe, you know, we, we hope to contribute, I mean, we, we frame our mission as, uh, to grow the GDP of the internet. Uh, I mean, kind of very directly around economic growth. Uh, and like on some level, you know, that sounds pretty arcane. I don't think there were many other companies that sort of are, you know, <laughs> framing their mission relative to GDP, but I mean, it, it really does get back to this, um, this idea we've been discussing where, where I think that's actually like a, a very urgent cause. Um, I think, I think roughly speaking, you can, uh, sort of break it down in two ways. There's kind of actually maybe, maybe three ways where there's kind of, uh, how do you raise the level, uh, of countries that are kind of behind the frontier? Uh, so emerging markets, developing countries, how do you raise them to kind of uh, where we are today? And there are these kind of tantalizing examples, uh, that like that is actually possible. And so you look at, uh, you mentioned Singapore, uh, you look at, um, Hong Kong, Taiwan, uh, uh, South Korea, to some degree, Vietnam, of course, China, though China still has quite a ways to go. Um, uh, but, but I mean, there are these amazing examples of countries that have really transformed themselves in remarkably short periods of time. Uh, you know, S South Korea is perhaps kind of the best example, just in terms of the magnitude of the change in like just a couple of decades. And so, you know, we might think like, perhaps if you, if you look at Africa, uh, and kind of no other countries existed, you might say, well, just inevitably, it takes centuries for this catch up to happen. And, you know, maybe we can kind of accelerate it a little bit, but like, you know, there's, there's no way this can happen overnight. That's empirically not true. We have these examples of countries in which it happened, you know, in a kind of in a grand arc of history sense, it happened essentially overnight. Uh, and so what is it about South Korea um, uh, that kind of made that possible? And can we enact the same transformation uh, in, uh, in Egypt uh, or in Ethiopia? Uh, so I think that's kind of one dimension of the question. I think the other dimension uh, is um, how do we... How do we advance at the frontier? And so, if you think about you know Western Europe or North America or Singapore or Japan, whatever, um, how do we how do we make progress here? And I think so much of that is how do we how do we enable new things to happen? How do we have new technology get deployed? How do we have entrepreneurs start more companies? How do we unleash the potential of more people who want to do more weird things? How do we make sure that when somebody spots an opportunity for improvement that doesn't get kind of squished by the kind of, you know, stultifying um, sort of uh, deceleration of the status quo? How do we make sure that it gets kind of encouraged and amplified? And again, obviously kind of Stripe is, uh, you know, an effort in this space. Um, uh, as indeed too is, uh, is pioneer. Um, and the third one is, well, how do we, how do we just generate new knowledge? Um, how do we, you know, understand the world more deeply and just what is it, you know, intrinsically possible, uh, so that, uh, you know, so we've more, uh, buttons to push on the, on the sort of, uh, on the switchboard. Um, and so I, I kind of break it down in those sort of three ways. And I think they're, they're all kind of quite different questions, uh, and all, really incredibly important. I agree that they are very important. And I, I'd love to revisit for a second, if you have any thoughts, South Korea, it's come up a yes. few times. 
what yep. what are some of the observations you've made or mm -hmm. uh, things that you think uh, are interesting about South Korea? Like the, the anything yeah. sp any, any specifics of what they've done? <laughs> well, um, ironically, it's actually the uh, it's the richest country in the world um, by GDP uh, that I've not been to. Um, so, um, so, you know, I, I caveat my answer with, with sort of that, um, having said that, there's actually a really good book on this topic, um, uh, called how Asia works by, uh, Joe Studwell, I believe. Um, and basically he, he's trying to answer kind of exactly this question of, uh, why, uh, you know, why did South Korea and uh, Taiwan and China and uh, uh, Vietnam and, and, and so forth, why did they diverge from Philippines and from Indonesia um, and, you know, to, to a significant degree from India um, and, uh, and so forth? Um, and, uh, and basically the answer he gives and he has kind of, he marshals kind of fairly compelling evidence for it is, uh, is the following. Um, land reform protected... Um, but competitive industrial and kind of export industries, and then third, tight control over the consumer credit sector. Um, and that obviously seems like a very kind of, you know, arbitrary basket of things, but he, you know, he makes a pretty strong case for it. Uh, and, you know, just to provide a little bit of color on that, like the idea is that kind of first you want to make sure that people own their own land so they can kind of farm it more effectively. They can kind of reap the rewards, the fruits of their own labor. And so that kind of gives you this immediate bump in kind of national income uh, uh, when people, you know, can, can sort of um, uh, invest in something they really own themselves. Um the second thing is, well, most of these countries have no kind of meaningful, you know, export industries or these kind of, you know, value added export industries. Uh, and so you, you kind of want to you, you, you encourage the um, you know, the creation of like a national car company or something, uh, which, of course, uh, South Korea successfully did, or maybe do some electronics manufacturing or whatever. And you want to kind of subsidize that, but you do have to force them to compete internationally because they just kind of, if you just protect them and they just serve the domestic market, you'll just end up with a worse and less efficient version of stuff that exists uh, in the rest of the world. So you got to force them to compete. And the third one is you want to kind of restrain the consumer credit industry such that sort of rather than, you know, giving credit to consumers to go and, you know, spend it on leisure um, or, or um, you know, whatever it is, I guess, that consumers might choose to do, that you kind of direct all of that towards industrialization, economic progress, and sort of catch up growth with the rest of the world. And then once you catch up, you know, then maybe you should kind of give it to consumers because, you know, who else are you going to give it to? You've reached the frontier. Um, but the thesis of the book is that kind of reining it in in the development phases has really served those countries well. So that is basically the prescription as Joe, again, Sudwell um, lays it out. Uh, and I'm no expert here, but I've really spent quite a bit of time sort of trying to better understand this question. Uh, and uh, it, it's certainly the best cut that I've seen. Another one that's kind of worth mentioning is James Fallows wrote a piece for The Atlantic back in the 90s. Um, called, it's not called How the World Works, but it's some title like that. But if you search kind of James Fallows trade, and if you include list, uh, this German economist um, as a search term, um, then uh, you'll find it. And it's again, kind of about, it, it, it's basically about the, the South Korea question. Great. And I'll put all of these links. There have been a few things that have come up with uh, maybe reference checks required. So for people listening, I will have uh, my team check on all that stuff and we'll put links into the show notes. So you'll be able Super. to find those at tim.blog forward slash podcast on South Korea, just to add the, uh, a, a maybe ridiculous sidebar 
another head scratcher about South Korea is that for many years in the last decade, they have produced the best break dancers in the world. <laughs> and uh, people who are curious to see what that looks like can check out uh, B-Boy Pocket for <laughs> some ridiculous footage. Uh, and how that came to be is also a, a gigantic mystery to me. Uh, but I'm hoping that perhaps I can find online, there is a, I want to say, the history of Japan in nine minutes, something like that on mm. YouTube, which accomplishes that feat by omitting... Uh, most proper nouns, uh, particularly <laughs> names of people, but it gives you a really mm. nice synopsis. I'm going to try to find something similar for South Korea and put it in the show notes. So we have just a little bit of time left. What I would love to talk about, because this is something that I I feel like I'm pretty good at, and this is uh, mm. decision-making, but mm. I still know there is a ton of room for improvement. And I, in the process of preparing for this conversation, came across a transcript of a conversation in which you talked mm -hmm. about increasing the speed of decision making. And mm -hmm. it made me think uh, a little bit of, I think it's the Eisenhower matrix of sort of prioritizing uh, yep. the sort of important but not timely quadrant and so on. But c could you talk about making your your framework for making decisions or or how you have cultivated making faster decisions because this is yep. i think so important and it's along with the uh the involvement of now successful entrepreneurs as kids at the dinner table uh yep. the f focus on uh, uh making fast decisions even if there's like a 10% or more error rate uh, pops up a lot. Like Reed Hoffman, uh, LinkedIn fame, another kind of good example of that. Uh, I would love to hear you talk, yeah. us, talk us through that because on a day-to-day -day basis, I know that's important and yet I just, I need a kind of methodical way to practice it more, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, let me think for a second. Um, I think that, I actually think that decision-making uh is probably a little bit overrated um, as uh, as kind of a question in that or an area of study. Um, in that, uh, investors obviously this is their job, right? And that's kind of all they can do in some sense, invest or not. And you know, fine if they're you know certain kinds of investors get to actually help the companies they invest in, and so they have kind of other levers at the disposal. But kind of in some simplified model, it's like you know, do you click the button or not? Do you pull a lever or not? Um, I actually think that kind of in our lives, things rarely have that character. Um, sometimes you have a true binary decision, right? Like, do I go to this college or that college? Do I take this job offer or not? Uh, and it sort of it, it, it's a sort of an investing or investment like decision, but it's not usually that. Um, and I think that the kind of um, the question I would sort of encourage people to kind of think more about is how do I get to make better decisions? Um, as in how do, like how do I make sure that the decisions I'm confronted with end up being better? <laughs> um, like the, you know, it's not like how should I choose an option A and B, but how do I make sure that both options A and B are as good as possible? And there's also C, D, and E, and that those options are great too. Um, and that's about sort of how do you how do you explore the space to make sure that you sort of um, 
uh, actually, well, just to kind of return to maybe the example we just mentioned, it's like, you know, do I go to this college or that college? It's, I mean, there's also a C there, which is, well, should I go to college? Um, or it's, um, you know, um, should I, uh, should I become a, a doctor or a dentist? Uh, but you know, maybe the answer is that, uh, you know, you should, uh, you should become a biochemist. Um, and so the, the way I, I find myself in conversations with people is sort of really trying to push them. It's less on sort of how do you make a decision and more about how do you jolt yourself out of the kind of particular kind of, um, furrows that you're in and realize the possibility space and the world is just so much bigger than perhaps people are thinking about it. And it's so, I mean, it happens to all of us. It happens to me. The kind of your horizons narrow, you get stuck in your existing models, you um, kind of get used to conceiving of the world and the options in front of you in a particular way. And it's more about how do you repeatedly pull yourself out of that. Um, how do you do that? Are there questions you ask? Are there... I, um, Any... I think, I, I think certain, certain people are great at this. Like I have a friend, Michael Nielsen, um, and what was the last name? Uh, Nielsen, um, N I E L S E N. And he's just exceptionally good at, at sort of, um, you know, uh, you're sort of, um, you know, thinking, well, should I go up or down? And he's just great at sort of pointing out all the different ways in which you could go sideways. Um, and it's like, or, or, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of living in flatland, uh, on this kind of two-dimensional plane, and he points out maybe you could go up, um, and and so I guess the best, yeah, the, the the best ways that I found are sort of particular people, people who just sort of seem to think laterally, um, uh, and kind of I guess in my head they're kind of thinking sideways, um, and, and I think the second best way is exposing yourself to kind of more perspective and ideas, you know, in all the ways we've kind of already discussed. But I think finding the people who just think a bit divergently, um, th the returns are really high. And I think have, have, having that sort of little board of directors around you, um, th that's kind of an imperfect analogy because it's not like there's a specific set for me. I kind of go, tend to go to different kinds of people for different kinds of issues. And it's not like they actually have any formal power, obviously. But just kind of that notion of there being these um, sources of perspective that are quite different to you, I think that's um, I think that's just really very powerful. I think valuing those people um, and 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 building those relationships really pays off. Mm -hmm. There's there's a this uh, you mentioning that the uh, peer group or virtual or real board of directors uh, with divergent thought processes made me think of a book that really helped me. A long time ago, I've been meaning to revisit it, but uh, it's actually a combination of two books. Um, and I don't know how well these would age if I were to pick them up now <laughs> for where I am. But uh, I would want to say probably 15 or 20 years ago, I found them very, very helpful. Edward de Bono is the mm. author. There's one book, I want to say it's Lateral Thinking. The other was something along the lines of the, the Six Thinking Hats. And mm. the 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 conceit or the premise behind the latter is that you create a virtual table of 
advisors who represent different pers- yes. a different extreme perspective, right? So you might have yes. the pessimist, you might have the innovator, you might have the fill in the blank, and there are a set of questions and priorities that each of those have. So you run your situation through the lens of each of those thinking hats. And uh, I found that tremendously valuable for, yes. you know, as you put it, uh, getting out of flatland. Well, and the amazing thing is, uh, well, I, I, um, I read about this study. I've not confirmed whether or not it has replicated, uh, but the idea that um, um, people can improve their own uh, decision-making um, by simply choosing other people, I mean, basically uh, exactly along the lines of what you just said, and imagining what they would say, like specific other people, imagining what they would say, and then averaging over the responses. <laughs> um, but that's like a really amazing fact, because of course, this is all occurring in your own head. And so the idea that by kind of just simulating other people, and then again, kind of preferring this kind of co- averaging computation over their responses, that that's actually better, is really like a pretty trippy thought. Uh, and yet, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense to you, right? Because you you can actually, for certain people, predict, I think, with relatively good accuracy what they're likely to say. That's kind of a way of getting out of your own biases. Totally. And in fact, uh, <laughs> I haven't done the averaging of responses, but I do have a, a number of friends who have very well-developed characteristics I would like to develop more myself. And yes. one of them who comes to mind is Matt Mullenweg. The, mm. He's uh, great. He's an amazing guy, CEO of a company called Automatic, M-A-T-T, yes. Automatic, if people can put the two together now. Uh, so Matt Mullenweg, Automatic. In any case, uh, brilliant guy, not to be confused with Octomatic. Uh, but so Matt <laughs> Mullenweg. Automatic is way, way, way more successful than Octomatic ever was. <laughs> So Matt Matt Mullenweg is uh, one of the calmest people mm. on average I've ever met. And this is particularly noticeable when he is going through circumstances or encountering business situations or personal situations that would elicit a really strong emotional response from most people I know, even high-achieving mm. people. Mm. So I very often, when I am feel myself on the verge of getting spun up uh, about a given situation will ask myself, (laughs) what would Matt say? (laughs) Right? Yes. Yes. Because I've had him talk me off the ledge so many times uh, away from making rash, uh, ultimately what would have been really bad decisions, often uh, some type of quick emotional response to uh, yes. Who knows what? It could have been anything. Uh, and uh, so, so I have found that really useful. And I've done that also with people like uh, Richard Feynman, for instance. Yes. Uh, Shirley, yes. You, I think it's what Shirley, you're joking, Mr. Feynman, Mr. Feynman. one of my, yep. my favorite yep. books of all time. So it does, not have, it does not have to be someone you know in a direct personal yes. sense, but it helps Absolutely. if it is someone who you have you feel you know well, right? Yes, yes. And uh, so, so I'm glad you, you yeah. mentioned that because I've personally used that. Matt, for whatever reason, uh, I suppose for many reasons, tends to be one I go to a lot because I wouldn't say that calmness is always my defining uh, <laughs> strong suit. <laughs> yeah, no, I think having those, um, th- th- that, that pantheon of people, um, both kind of people you actually know and then sort of... Um, uh, 
you know, people you know from afar and maybe they're living, maybe they're dead, um, is just super powerful. And I guess there's something about kind of us as humans where we're sort of uniquely well adapted to being influenced by and understanding other humans. Uh, and so sort of rather than, I think, thinking about sort of decision making purely this kind of abstract science, but actually embracing the fact that it has this kind of deeply human character to it and you know, you can really kind of use that to your advantage. And, you know, it, I, I'm sure many, I know many guests in the show uh, have uh, talked about um, the importance of kind of being deliberate and intentional and in kind of selecting your peer group and the people who influence you as an, you know, one, one thing you can do is you can uh, sort of try to make sure the people around you don't influence you too much. Uh, and uh, that you kind of are, you know, truly original and coming up with your own thoughts and so on. Or you can embrace the fact that they do and they inevitably will and just be careful about who they are um, and try to make sure that they'll shape you in sort of ways and directions that you want to be shaped. Uh, and uh, I think that's both more effective, but also honestly a more fulfilling way to go about it. And uh, I, I, I want to confess also that I thought uh, when you were talking about binary decisions first, whether mm. it be investing or, say, college, uh, where I thought you might go, uh, which, which I'm glad you didn't, because um, now, now we have more uh, <laughs> to discuss, <laughs> is that uh, there are many decisions where you cannot possibly make an informed Right decision based on complete information, and, oh, it, yeah. It, it, yeah. and and that's part of the reason why I find Eisenhower very interesting to study is that yes. he had a lot of military experience. In which case, you cannot, you do not have the luxury of taking totally. forever to gather information to make a decision. And yes. in many cases, you you the only way you can have more complete information is to make what might be yes the wrong decision, and then yes. and then course correct. Uh, yeah. And, and exactly. This is back to this point, I think, uh, of uh, you're, you're dead right to kind of flag this. And I think it's back to this uh, idea that um, just try to get better, um, try to get yourself into a position in which you can make a better decision. And one way you can do that is by kind of exploring for more options right now. Another way you can do that is just make the decision and like remake it if you have to, because that can the, the remaking of it can often be a better decision because you'll have much better information uh, once it's augmented with or um, once you have the kind of additional information that, hey, this branch really does not look promising. And I know that because I tried it for you know two months. Um, and I, I, again, I, I think another way in which the, the kind of framework of sort of optimizing decision making can be kind of a little bit harmful is um, it sort of characterizes uh, or I guess it focuses on the locus of the decision itself. Whereas who cares? You don't necessarily need to be sort of that good at decision making if you sort of get really good at remaking the decisions when and as necessary. You know, you, you, you mentioned that, you know, um, I fly, you know, both John and I have been flying for more than 10 years. Uh, and, you know, when you're when you're flying a landing, you're always off track, always off track. Uh, and uh, you know, if you, if you, if sort of there was a big discussion of like, how do you make sure that you get established on like precisely the right glide slope when you start, you know, I, I don't think that'd really be that productive. I, I think it'd be sort of pretty frustrating. Instead, it's all about like the constant feedback and, and course and error correction. And I think, um, that's kind of as a general matter, a better model for life. Uh, and that even a lot of the decisions that look pretty trapped or, um, may not necessarily be. Uh, there's a really good book uh, that I very highly recommend um, 
called the inner game of tennis which <laughs> is kind of yeah. uh, Timothy okay, well, Timothy Galway right yeah, yeah. exactly mm-hmm. um, and you know th- obviously one of the kind of general messages of that book is uh, that so much of doing things well is about being really good at seeing just what is happening um, and kind of then uh, sort of training your conscious and subconscious to kind of make the requisite corrections and that intuition really resonates with me I'm so glad you mentioned that and uh, it it's reinforced I think a directional change for me or not not really it's a, it's not a directional change it's a so like reformatting of the, th- the thinking about the problem, right? Because you could have the, the best solutions imaginable for the wrong problems and you're not going to get uh, <laughs> where you want to go. In my case, I, exactly. think, I think I focused excessively on getting better at decision-making without really uh, refining that to say that, uh, you know, per- perhaps the better question to ask is how can I get better at... Uh, or better could mean faster, develop more confidence in experimenting very quickly and then yes. undoing or yes. redoing the decision. Yes. Because that is, that is uh, you know, for instance, I've in the last year focused on tr- getting very good at renegotiating commitments, which I think mm-hmm. for a long time philosophically or morally I, was just ob- I objected to it but until I realized that all of the people I know well, I shouldn't say all, but most who are kind of paragons of execution will occasionally just say, fuck, I bit off more than I can chew. I need to go back and renegotiate some of these. I need to go back and have uncomfortable conversations and wipe my calendar of the handful of things that I committed to six months ago because it just does, I have more information now. It does not make sense. Yep, yep, yep. And there's all the kind of hyperbolic discounting that we engage in with regard to our future selves and overcommitments that ensue and all the rest. And I, I think also, well, there's, there's another, I think, fabulous book that kind of touches on some of this, um, The Art of Doing Science and Engineering by Richard Hamming. The uh, Art of, you the might art of Doing Science like, and Engineering? Yes, that's right. Uh, and um, the last chapter especially, I mean, the whole book to some degree, but especially the last chapter is, I think, really applicable to and relevant to really almost anyone. Uh, the last chapter is called uh, You and Your Research. It's actually kind of a talk that uh, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people listening to the show have have uh, previously kind of read or heard. Um, but uh, Hamming uh, worked at Bell Labs, uh, and he, uh, in the book, kind of often quotes and cites uh, John Tukey, uh, this amazing guy uh, who sort of also worked at Bell Labs um, and uh, is the sort of father of, uh, of data visualization. Um, and uh, like a lot of kind of uh, data visualizations and analyses that kind of we're familiar with, that kind of we think of as being standard, you know, John Tukey actually invented. Um, but there's this kind of two-key line that it's uh, far better to have an approximate answer to the right question, uh, you know, which is often vague, uh, than an exact answer to the wrong question, which can always be made precise. Um, and again, I think this kind of gets back to the same idea that it's, it's kind of somehow more important to be kind of making the right decisions to have the right options than to be perfect at choosing between a specific set of options. Right. You know what? This is yeah. That's that's really. I want. I would like to sit and digest that myself. And so it's probably just for uh, like recency bias for people listening. A good place to start wrapping up. <laughs> and I know where we could go for hours more. So maybe we'll do another round sometime. But uh, that'd be great. Are there any parting recommendations, requests, suggestions, uh, words of wisdom, anything at all? questions you'd like to pose to the audience and a place where they can respond or a way in which they can respond anything at all that you'd like to say before we before we wrap up um 
I mean, um, I guess to whatever extent, um, well, I, I, I wrote in that list of advice, um, that if people around you don't think what you're doing is sort of, uh, a bit strange, uh, that maybe it's not strange enough. Uh, and I don't think you should always be heeding that, but, uh, I do often wish that people did more, did more strange things, um, in service of, or in pursuit of, uh, real sort of long-term, um, uh, economic and technological progress. Uh, and so, you know, that, that's kind of, uh, figuring out how to help people to do more weird, strange and original things, uh, in service of that is, is kind of, that's, that's my particular goal. Um, trying to kind of, uh, arm those upstarts, um, and those misfits. Uh, and, um, you know, it's, it, but, uh, it's, it's a very big space. Uh, and, uh, I would, um, you know, very profoundly welcome, uh, more participants, uh, pushing for that cause. Here, here. And people can give a wave. Hello, uh, on Twitter at Patrick C. Yes, they can. And, and by the way, I think your podcast is, uh, is a fabulous effort in this direction. Thanks so much. Uh, that, that really means a lot. Uh, and that's certainly a hope of mine. I mean, that is, that is a hope of mine. I, I so enjoy having these conversations and, uh, it's, it's opened so many doors for me in terms of my own thinking and questioning so many of my own assumptions that, you know, I hope cumulatively that it, it does help nudge things into a, a more positive direction along the lines that you mentioned. So I, I appreciate you saying that. Well, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I won't, you know, um, bore you or flatter you with, uh, with, you know, um, with, with praise here, but, uh, but I, I, I think, I mean, to my perspective, certainly, and I listen to a lot of podcasts, uh, that, uh, that there's kind of a, a lineage of, uh, of podcasts that can kind of be traced back um, to, to this show, um, <laughs> that, that there's kind of, there's a model that you prototyped, um, uh, and, and obviously continue to implement, uh, that, you know, now sort of a, a lot of other podcasts are kind of somehow, you know, a different version of, <laughs> which, uh, uh, you know what, which I'm excited about because hopefully they'll, they'll do an even better job. And I've, I've been so excited to see, uh, certainly Jocko willing run off and create, his yeah, entire exactly. empire, and then you have Cal Fussman and right. Peter Tia and others. Yep. I, uh, it's uh, it's it's really fun. And Hamilton Morris, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for your podcast, Hamilton, to as are thousands yeah, of people. Exactly. And, and, and right, and and you know these aren't competitive in the sense that uh, you know um, you know Robinson Crusoe was kind of one of the first novels, and you know <laughs> turns out that, that was a big space, uh, and it was uh, it was not a bad thing when more novelists came along, uh, and so kind of. Similarly, I actually think that uh, sort of um, I'm not even sure the podcast space is the podcast space per se. Uh, it's more the sort of um, the, the the serious, in-depth, long-form exp exploration. Um, but it, it's even though that obviously is kind of way bigger now than it was five years ago, uh, it still seems to me that it's it's actually still quite early. 
Oh, it's so early. I agree. It's it's really, really early. I had people tell me when I was contemplating starting a podcast that the ship had already sailed. I mean, it's some pretty smart people <laughs> with a lot of experience. Oh. And they were telling me then that the ship had sailed. And I'm telling anyone who's considering starting a podcast now that it's not even close. The ship hasn't even been built. This is one of the really interesting and surprising things where people keep feeling um, uh, that spaces are too late uh, when in fact they're um, you, know, you know, not only not too late, but like still in the first 10%. Uh, uh, Mark Andreessen talks about getting to Silicon Valley in you know, the early 90s and thinking, man, I'm too late. Um, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the endless kind of similar examples you can point to. And I mean, we, we worried about it with Stripe, um, uh, obviously. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, yet, yet we, we kind of came to realize that actually, you know, the Internet as a whole is still in its earliest innings. Oh, definitely. Yeah, there's, there's always, there's always, I mean, Stripe is a great example of this. There's, I mean, there's always a market for great. Uh, and, and, and that is not dependent on creating or shipping something today or this afternoon. Uh, there, there's always, there's always room for that. Uh, well, Pat, Patrick, I meant that Patrick, I appreciate you taking the time. And no, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. And uh, for everybody Likewise. for everybody listening, I will put links to everything we discussed, the papers, the books, the sites, some of the folks on Twitter, all these things in the show notes, which you can find at tim.blog forward slash podcast. Just search Patrick or Collison and this episode will come right up. You can scroll down to find it. And until next time, thank you for listening. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? And would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. I get asked all the time, if you could only use one supplement, what would it be? My answer is inevitably Athletic Greens. It is your all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it in the 4-Hour Body, did not get paid for that, and I travel with it to avoid getting sick. I take it in the mornings to ensure optimal performance. It just covers all my bases if I can't get what I need through whole food meals throughout the rest of the day. If you want to give Athletic Greens a try, they are offering a free 20-count travel pack for first-time users, I always travel with at least three or four of these. This represents a $100 value. So if you buy Athletic Greens, you get an extra $100 in free product. So check it out, athleticgreens.com forward slash Tim. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Tim for your free travel pack with any purchase. This episode is brought to you by 99designs. 99designs is the global creative platform that makes it easy for designers and clients to work together. From logos to apps, 
packaging to books, 99designs is the go-to design resource for any budget. I've used 99designs for many, many years now. I've used them for book covers, for instance, mock-ups for The 4-Hour Body, which went on to become a number one New York Times bestseller, illustrations for my multi-volume, The Tao of Seneca, and other graphic design projects. And I've been really impressed by the quality of their designers and the designs that I've ended up using. Most recently, I used 99designs to update the illustrations and layouts of my Five Morning Rituals ebook. This covers my most consistent morning routines and rituals. And I offer that as an incentive for people to sign up for my newsletter. So this is a PDF bonus that acts as a carrot to increase the number of email subscribers. The illustrations inside are gorgeous, and I loved working with the designer who we selected for the project. So you can check it out. Take a look at that at 99designs.com forward slash Tim. That's the number 99designs.com forward slash Tim. And you can see exactly what I'm talking about with a real world example of what has come out of working with them. 99designs designer search tool connects you directly with one designer based on design category or industry specialization, style, skill level, availability, and more. So you can really check all the boxes that you need and see who matches up. Or you can start a contest. And that means you invite the entire community to take a shot at your project, then you pick your favorite. Right now, you guys, my listeners, that is, can receive a free $99 upgrade on your first design contest. So check it out. To see what it looks like to get your first free upgrade, please visit 99designs.com forward slash Tim and click on the link in the landing page. So again, check it out, 99designs.com forward slash Tim.